0: Welcome to the Crash Courts Podcast. I'm your host, Steve. I'm John. And I'm Matt, aka Storm Again. And I'm your host, Steve. I'm John. And I'm Matt, aka Storm Again. And this is the Crash Courts Podcast. I wasn't sure.
1: No no no, whatever, right. no, no, no. I, talk, I wasn't talk. sure if after the second round you were going to keep doing it, and then you didn't, which is why I interrupted, but
0: then you did. No, this intro's going to be long enough. I, yeah, I know. I don't, like, I don't need... Uh, we don't need it to be more repetitive? Yeah, we don't need minutia. Um, I don't know if any of this is minutia. I don't think it's minutia. We have a lot of uh, important stuff to cover today, and I'm pretty excited for this episode. So excited, in fact, that our topic is not where it normally would be. Our topic is going to be here, at the beginning of the episode. We have to go through so many different things that I think it's more important that we get the stuff out now and then go into the album rather than going into the album and then going into the stuff, because it all kind of functions as a prelude to this album. So think of it as if it were just a guest episode. and We normally interview the guest because we like to get to know them before we actually talk about something really, really intense with them. It's kind of what we have to do here. And so, first things first, today is a listener pick. Doug Ferguson, one half of the Music A to Z podcast, which we touched on back in episode 150, the music podcast event has recommended us another album that's right he's a two-timer not of the deceptive nature but of the dissecting nature that was terrible yeah that, that was, was really, really awful yeah. it was pretty terrible wait what
1: was his fr- <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking on what his first request was
0: his first request his last recommendation <coughs> Vega International oh, Night School right. oh that's oh, right yeah, that's yeah, right yeah, yeah. by None Neon Indian, Indian and it was yes. exactly a year ago or 50 episodes ago in episode 177 so go check that out and the link to Music A is the episode on said artist and the 150th episode special event where we discussed their podcast or just keep listening to this because you're here, and why would you shift gears so capriciously? That's nuts. I mean, it is, but, you know, the pause button exists for a reason. It does exist for a reason. Otherwise, we'd be radio. Do we want to be radio? Is that actually, like... I mean, we In technically are. Podcasts are radio. AM, no, it's like, not. Wait, 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 no, wait. AM, not.
2: FM, or XM? Because, honestly, AM's mm. dead. Yeah, FM X, is done. XM dying. has the
0: best chance, but even but no, they're no, really losing pays some for it yet anymore. Like, they, they'd rather they have just... To get well, I mean, podcasting I is know. the natural evolution of radio. Like, know. these are radio shows. Uh, people only have XM if they got a car where they offered them Sirius XM, like, automatically. Mm-hmm. A lot of people got XM that way. I'm, I'm pretty sure we're having an existential crisis about podcasts right now. I think so. Just... I'll tell you what. Don't check all that other stuff. Stay here right now, because we're at here, and help us discuss one of our very few classical albums to date. That's Chambers by Chili Gonzalez. And before we go uh, much further, I do want to, of course, thank Doug,
1: as I'm sure Steve would like to also, since Steve is very excited about this album. I'm pretty excited. But um, but uh, truly, thank you, Doug, and thank you, Music A to Z Podcast. It's, they are our brothers to the north, as we like to say. You know, There is a lot of, I think, crossover between what we do here and what
0: they do, and it's why I've become so such a fan of their show. Well, let's actually explain what they do, because I'm not done yet with them. I need to give our annual advertisement of the Music A (laughs) to Z podcast. Actually, we've probably pitched them a few times since last year's episode, but just to keep this simple, I'm going to paraphrase something I said last year. If you're looking for insane note-by-note dissections of a single album and its function as a work of art, come to us. If you're looking for comprehensive artist analyses, go to them. I believe I put it as, they're the encyclopedia to our microscope, or magnifying glass, or something of that nature. But I do think to take myself out of the equation if possible if I were a lover of music just if, let's say, and a fan of roundtable <laughs> hey, discussions. you like music? I do happen to like music. Oh, wow. He also likes to talk, too. I, oh, I really do. He does. And I'm going to be doing a lot of it. But if you're a fan of music and roundtable discussions and podcasts, and you were curious about an artist, or you were just in the mood to take in a profile of an artist, then I'd say that we, alas, are not the place for that. You one day to Z. Or Zed. They say Zed. But they'll take you through the career of an artist, the dawning of the artist, the popularity swings, the labels, the albums, the collaborations, and their Stephen Doug Ferguson's own experience with it. We, on the other hand, are but a prologue on the life of the career and artist. The dissertation, as it were, for us, is the album in the title. So uh, that's however you take it. Differences in approach I wouldn't have any other way, and as I've said before, I genuinely think our podcasts make nice compliments.
1: I would agree, and uh, I'm glad that we have another album request just in general, and of course from Doug. Um, it was funny to me, the most recent interaction I had with Doug on Facebook or at least one of the more memorable, more recent ones, was when I posted my interview with Mike Rognetta before we had him on this show. That's right. And uh, while talking to Mike and interviewing him, I pitched Music A to Z because we're talking about analytical shows that we are both a fan I think it was
0: of. actually on my Facebook page that I shared the thing and, and he, he said something to the effect of, oh, hey, I love Mike Rugnetta and was like, hey, well, we recommended your podcast. He was like, that makes me unreasonably happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, well we also, were. I was unreasonably happy and he was here on our show. Oh, yeah, my God. Yes, that's true. And uh, it was really exciting to have the longest
1: episode in our history with Mike Rugnetta considering he's a little wordy, too. If you've
0: watched Idea Channel, that is true. We are all capable of speaking at length, so clearly <laughs> that would be our longest episode. And I am in that zone right now. So yeah, particular, I just do want to say one more thing about the A to Z podcast. Ah, uh, the Canadian artist run that they did, I believe that was their second A to Z run, uh, was pretty interesting to me because, well, they're from Canada, they're from Vancouver, and I was very eager to hear about some new artists from the Great White North, but no further south than Yellowknife. So give me all of those two artists, like Lee Dondenfer. Ah, <laughs> uh, what? I don't know. <laughs> was that joke meant to be over right? our It was a poor segue into today's artist, Uh-oh, Chili Gonzalez. got Because he's from Canada. Got but it. But actually, he sort of seemed to disown Canada in the end. Uh, Chili Gonzalez is next in the docket, and I'd like to tackle that prologue right now, if I may, and then follow it up with a little personal note on classical music. But Chili Gonzalez is from Toronto, which I guess would be the deep south of Canada in this case. Uh, says he taught himself piano at the age of three, only because his brother was taking lessons. So I guess he learned by proxy, but still doesn't. That's only a little vomit-inducing. He was born Jason Charles Beck... But he adopted Chili Gonzalez as his stage name in 1999, when he was only 27. He's 44 now, but he's had quite an interesting career. He was eventually classically trained proper, and for a while he led an alt-rock band called Sun, spelt like the offspring, not like the blinding ball of gas. And uh, Sun got pretty popular in their early unsigned stuff. He really developed his skills as a producer, and he had some early solo work of his own. But ultimately, it all folded, because he wasn't really great at the whole pop image thing, at least not back then. He led left Canada because I think he was dissatisfied with his image or his status or direction as a musician. And there was more out there for him, and out there for him meant Europe. Well, why Europe? I don't know. Classical musicians always want to go to Europe. It just feels more fulfilling when you're in that culture, because every city in Central Europe is like a pilgrimage. That premiered there. Mozart touched that pole. It's kind of irreplaceable. Also, supposedly, it's less about image in Europe because of their long-standing tradition that patrons support the artists they really like experimental stuff things of that nature and it did say that European critics were more receptive to Chile Gonzalez than perhaps the his Canadian and American critics are you saying that Americans could be no- narrow-minded that's shocking to me shocking even even here in New York City it's it's still pretty prevalent oh yeah, uh, yeah. No, comment. yeah no comment yeah yeah that's
1: <laughs> probably safer that way
0: all right well anyway Chile's been chilling in France for the bulk of that time recently he's been in Germany but his sound really did start to change after his big move and he did at times take some cues from the big composers he was heavily influenced by Eric Satie on his 2004 album simply called solo piano and then later on he did a solo piano too <laughs> You could have just gone along with that, honestly. This 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 is like piano with other stuff, I guess, this particular <laughs> right. album. Well, it might be like Or three. piano yeah. three, the pianoing with other stuff. The pianoing and more. Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. I, I got nothing. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's all right. We're that's not gonna, all right. we're gonna leave the puns punches. That's for, right? all right. You usually stay quiet until it matters. Yeah. But um anyway, since then he's done a lot of collaborations too, as a session musician for pop artists and stuff like that. So I don't really want to pitch him as a pure classical composer, though much of his work <laughs> today's album, is in that vein but he's also made a push back to pop music and piano rock, stuff in the vein of Bee Gees and Billy Joel, that sort of thing. He's also worked with artists uh, Peaches, Feist, Jamie Liddell, and very briefly, here's a place we may have heard him. He was on Random Access Memories by Daft Punk, which we reviewed back in episode 49. And, uh, yeah, we didn't mention at all in that episode, because we were kind of lax on our research back in those days. But to be fair, there were so many contributors on that album, it's not surprising that we missed a few. But since I'm in preview mode right now, I might as well mention that he appeared on the track Give Life Back to Music, and also the track Within, where he was tasked with creating a transition that would modulate to the key of subsequent tracks. This is actually kind of interesting. He said that his contribution on that album was recorded in a single day's session. And, quote... I played for hours, and they're gonna grab what they're gonna grab, and they're gonna turn it into whatever. He also explains that Daft Punk prompted him at the piano in the same manner a film director coaches an actor, and ultimately he left the studio without any knowledge of what the final product would be. Wow, interesting. Yeah so I guess that's the life of the session musician. Anyway, I find that pretty interesting, and I find him pretty interesting, which is why I'm excited to do this album. And yes, it is true that this album is straight up balls classical, which makes this a little unique on this series as far as our experience with classical is concerned. Over 227 episodes, it's really mostly been through borrow and barter. So considering that, another thing I really don't bring up too much on this podcast, although at times it's painfully obvious, is that it I do have some classical training, and I never know whether I'm downplaying this too much or playing it up too much, because recently its application is somewhat confined to this music journalism life of mine. There are other things in the works, but that remains to be seen. Here's the long and short of it: I've played piano since I was nine. I studied with the wonderful teacher Marilyn Gritz, this nice old Jewish lady who'd put a sticker on your sheet music when you completed the piece, and after 12 stickers, you'd get a toy. It was adorable. And then, late in college, I decided to finally formalize it with a theory and comp degree. Now this stuff is all on my bio, like in the About Us page, for instance, but I try to avoid mentioning it in excess on this podcast because I don't really feel credentials are especially necessary for our discussion. Yes, it allows me to go into detail on areas where I feel it's appropriate to do so, but in general, all you really need, and yes, that goes for you listening right now, uh, whoever you are, is an open mind, a critical mind, and a lot of patience, which I think we've all painstakingly developed and expanded over the last five years. A good vocabulary also kind of helps <laughs> in, in your development of this sort of thing. But anyway, I'm dredging all this up today because that background of mine has expectedly given me a huge appreciation of many areas of classical music, and that's something I don't exercise enough on this show, and I'll get to why in a moment. But as an overview, my parents played a lot of it on vinyl growing up, I learned a lot of it from my piano teacher, my high school orchestra, plenty more in college, so I realized pretty early on that it was a bigger part of my life than, say, for many of my friends' lives. And some Sometimes still, for weeks on end, it can be the only thing I feel like listening to, because when done right, classical music can be really engaging. And that said, I was pretty much surrounded by it in equal capacity, as I was modern rock, classic rock, electronica, that sort of thing. It takes artists like Godsticks and Second Relation to really yank me back out of the classical thing again, but it really just ebbs and flows all the time. I must take it after my dad in this regard, because the same guy who introduced me to Fire Dance by Manuel De Faya on one hand also introduced me to Frankenstein by Edgar Wintergroup. and it's clear we pretty much get the same rush from both pieces. Both completely blew my mind when I first heard them. I was literally leaping off the walls. It's funny. With classical music, I
1: find that, for me personally, like I've always listened to it since I was a kid also. My father has an extensive vinyl collection, has always played music I've for me. I've seen that collection. It's impressive. But, but I think what's funny is I got most of my knowledge of classical music, or at least my introduction to it, from a lot of media. I mean, old school Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes, even Hanna-Barbera, had tons of classical. Songs that I probably still don't even know the name of but the minute i hear it
0: absolutely recognizable kind of what we were talking about in last week's episode for our topic the Mm -hmm. end of the sting episode we were talking about how sometimes you really need like external sources in order to bring you to other areas of culture that you wouldn't have come across naturally it shouldn't be a matter of like oh i feel shame that i didn't come across this we need other culture to refer to other culture because there's just gonna be too much at a certain date and there was no shortage of that in looney tunes i mean
1: especially a lot of bugs bunny cartoons often had, like from the classical music they would play whenever there was a factory scene to the music, you know, I mean, Kill the Rabbit. I mean, stuff like
2: that. Which was one of the most, I guess, unique little bits growing up. Was stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly that. Uh, In fact, that was the only episode where Bugs lost to Elmer Fudd. Kill the Rabbit, yeah. Um, And I believe that was uh, Wagner. Mm-hmm. I think it was Ride of the Valkyries, if I'm oh, yeah, not yes, mistaken. It is, it was, it it is, it is Ride was of the Valkyries, yeah. Was. But for me, personally, like that was one of the few times I was exposed to it. I don't remember a lot of distinct music from old school cartoons, mostly because I was not really... Watching a lot of it except on Saturday morning cartoons, and that didn't do a whole lot of Hanna Barbera or Looney Tunes or anything like that. From so the you, weren't, way back a, you then. weren't in the loop, then I, I was, and I wasn't. It was, yeah, I saw old school Warner Brothers, but some of the really old stuff like Flintstones, Jetsons weren't really in my realm at that time. The only way I really got Classical was one teacher in the summer before high school. I went to a music appreciation class. That hmm. was to, just to get. I had to get the music out of the way. You either had to be in band or you had to be in vocals or you had to take music appreciation. And my high school allowed me to take it in the summer before. So hey, look, I got done with my credits. Yay! But uh, he was a big fan of classical music i mean he's a, he's a conductor for the school he runs the band he does all that sort of stuff and he had even part-time gigs that he would speak about but he also showed us over the course of those six weeks that we were in class half a dozen different documentary style films mozart beethoven things like that that was the first time i really got into classical because well i was first time i was really learning about it And that's when I started looking out for things like Wagner, like Bach and stuff like that. And it's only in the last few months that I've even really gone back to it since then. Uh, Classical music is, well, it's like, uh, all right, that's that's old. It's been around. It's sort of like I feel like I'm going to get to it one day. But I never
0: really made the push to get to it. Well, that's why I wanted to get all our different perspectives on classical music in general as a prologue, which is not something we'd normally do. We'd normally include this as like a topic. And it's not to say we haven't looked at some classical oriented things, but I do kind of want to establish my background with it, my longer background with it, I guess, than both of you guys, just to sort of return to my point. Why don't Considering all that, why don't I bring more classical music onto the show? At the risk of making this intro, like, you know, all about myself here, I want to put this to both of you guys. Can you take a guess? I got—I'll I, go first, because I want to go first. All I, right. I
2: think it's purely because, um, when you're talking about classical and you're talking about the movements, um— with a lot of classical music, it is meant to be not broken up so dramatically as what you usually find on an album. So it becomes a little bit difficult and a little bit wordy to take a 45-minute piece and try to explain it
0: step-by-step step in the three-minute snippets we get with other albums. That happens to be answer number one, because there are three answers here. But yeah, number one, it's, it's difficult. And we've been steadily turning this podcast into an increasingly difficult project, just because, duh, that gets the best results. But in humble admittance, some weeks, I'm all jived up for the labor that will be, say, Death by Water by Yugen or Scattering by Prager. And other weeks, Matt says 50 by Rick Astley, and I'm just like, thank you. Thank you, God, yes. <laughs> Astley's not pulling any end uh, runs around me on this song, I don't think. So, uh, yeah, occasionally I have avoided it for ease. Any other guesses?
1: I'm going to guess. And see, I thought, I thought it might be this, and then I backed out on it, but I'm going to stick with it. Because a lot of the artists who have made this stuff have been dead a long time or because they there
0: isn't newer kinds of a, a frequency of newer stuff for one this one would think this was all Pre-arranged dead people is the second answer, actually. We we don't do dead people music. We like talking about music that sits in a level playing field with its contemporaries. That means the last couple of years because it just smooths out the potential bumps in our discussion, and it saves us from having to use the phrase of the time, for the time. So, yeah, obviously that leaves my options pretty firmly to contemporary classical, the greatest oxymoron of them all. And uh, I'm gonna be blunt here, that stuff's not always in my rotation. When you're fascinated with a certain composer, a dead composer that is, Uh, research of their work will often lead you to their contemporaries, more dead people. Occasionally, you'll get some modern artist who follows in their footsteps, but I gotta be honest, for the last few years, I've been obsessed with, let's say, Leo Ornstein, uh, and the the 1910s Futurist Movement. And ironically, that Futurist Movement has not led me to anything modern, or, or futuristic. It's led me to past Futurists, dead Futurists, ex-post-facto Futurists. (laughs) you sound <laughs> frustrated a little bit a little Ex- bit expo facto yeah. expo facto yeah exactly um, um there's one more answer but
1: i guess since we both guessed one you just tell us the third one all right i, I think i know it though do you all yeah, right what do you think, think it I know it? um
2: how do i phrase this without being rude because i think i know what it is because it's a dead genre mm. and it has the perception of being a dead genre nope that's not it okay
0: nope nope it's you guys us yeah what do you mean There was a time early in the series when I assumed that although you might appreciate classical music from a distance, there was not the history there, as we discussed before, with which to approach it with total objectivity. And it was a two-way street because I wasn't yet confident in my ability to express it, or accurately express what I liked about it, if prompted. But, I want you guys to know now, this reason has been pretty much melted away since, like, episode 30.
2: Yeah, I know. By the third time one of us brought on electronica and forced you to yeah. listen to it. I mean, you should have learned by then. Well, maybe episode 50. I was still a little skeptical Yeah. Though. It's <laughs> funny
1: because I never had those reservations as I've brought I've put you both through the ringer of things
0: that you'd rather not have listened to. Mostly pop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most, mostly pop. I'd say no, the I'm metal interested. albums I brought you didn't like for the most part as well. I do the prog classical stuff, John does the crazy electronica. Uh, and, and I don't know. There's baby metal.
2: There's baby metal. I mean, I've we brought on some weird stuff, and then I, yeah, swans. <laughs> I, I <have laughs> always got to that brought, one. Over. I
1: definitely brought on the larger swath of more popular in the mainstream stuff than you guys for sure. But
0: I have my oddball, oddballs as well. All right. Well, in conclusion, since one of those reasons has been irrelevant for years now, and the other, the matter of difficulty, has also kind of proven moot as we, with greater frequency, take on more difficult albums. If there was a reason that wins, then it would be the flaws in my own rotation. That's what i Decided on at the end. Apart from a few examples like genres with classical infusion, like Ben Folds, or uh, Anna Meredith's sidestep from classical to electronica, or cross-genre projects like Black Violin and Jan Tierson, who's basically just Jan Tiersen, <laughs> then yes, I have been lax in my search for contemporary classical artists, so I'm very, very excited to discuss Chambers by Chili Gonzalez. And for recommending it, I would like to thank you, Doug, if you're listening personally. The selection has actually inspired me to broaden my research into other categories. so that 2017 could be their best review season. We can make it and I'd like to make an addendum
1: instead of if you listen to when you listen Because we know you're gonna listen Doug. So hi Doug. (laughs) you know Um, I think I'm excited to take this apart and dissect it as well because a lot of the the couple of times We have broached this like Orca by Serge Tankian We weren't as thorough as we should have been and those were monstrous pieces whereas here the pieces as you'll discover as we go through them, are more condensed to a pop song size at least. Yes. They are between two and four minutes, and so, the, it, it I feel like for me it'll
0: be easier to discuss because I can go moment to moment and not kind of get lost and Chile Gonzalez has said himself that in many ways he still sees a pop structure within this yeah. and I kind of see it but you gotta squint a little bit because I think there's a lot there's enough classical aesthetic here that for once I'm not the one saying this and be like ah that's just infusion that's not real <laughs> classical I really do think this is classical I would even I would, just, I would just say yeah we're looking at a classical album finally with just about no caveats uh, Oh, I'm going to be so happy when I bring up those caveats. Yeah, you, you have some exceptions, I think. But let's go into the album, Chambers by Chili Gonzalez. It's a 2015 work, just a little over the mark, although it was suggested in 2016 by Doug, so honestly, it's fair game. It is a work featuring Chili Gonzalez at the piano and then also Hamburg's Kaiser Quartet. So it's a full quartet with a piano, I guess that makes it a piano quintet. First, the album cover. It's him. Uh, so that a is a photo of him in a frame down a long hallway. Yeah, I because I looked up a picture of him and it's basically it's like a, not a photo, it's a portrait. It's a it's a as it, if it were a composer's portrait in a frame in a frame in a frame in a frame. Yeah,
1: it it does this weird perspective thing where it almost looks like it's down a it's a frame down a hallway. That's what I thought in at a
0: first. A hall of frames. That's, but, that's yeah. what I thought at first that it was actually like a series of chambers <laughs> yeah. that well, you were seeing. But I think it is a frame. Uh,
2: it, and actually frame in a frame. I th- I'm pretty sure it is. Auditorium style, wood floor, backdrop curtain. He's in the background, and they just put cutouts of doorways throughout the entire. Do you think piece. those are doorways? I that think those are like, frames. No, because like, they're, like arched. Stage go- staged they're arched, staged yeah, doorways. They're arched and not completed.
1: Like they're not a complete circle, like the frame in the far back. It seems like multiple archways to me. All
0: right, I'm swinging back. I think Matt was right. Yeah, it's actually, it's for Chambers. Yeah. You're, you're looking it, at Chambers. Even though John brought it up, I was right. All right. All right. <laughs> I'll take it. I love yeah, that okay. I get I'm to decide to who's right or not. <laughs> I'm, I'm
1: used to not getting the credit. It's okay. It's yeah, okay. I feel like in 2017, I definitely want to take a look at album
0: covers more. It's going in to fact, be a segment. That's it. We're decided now.
1: Well, and also, I think I also would love to do an episode maybe in the future where we talk about some of our favorite album covers and why, sure. and then we
0: can like link to those images in the episode. Sure. You know, that's a a bit of a tough one, because sometimes it's like the album makes you appreciate the cover more, and sometimes the cover makes you think, like, oh, this is going to be a really great album, and you're really disappointed. Sure. I have been in that predicament a lot, having walked through record store aisles. Let's go to track one, Prelude to a Feud. So, remember all that stuff I said about Chili Gonzalez and how he's, like, kind of in the pop wheelhouse and also in the classical wheelhouse? Well... But he really likes his puns, and at least that is a little bit unique to a more pop-inspired album, that these titles are not going to be, like, inherently self-serious. Prelude to a Feud is, I believe, a joke on Prelude and Fugue, which is a common pairing, a compositional thing that most composers will probably try at some point in their lives, because, well, everyone wants to be Bach. At least a little bit. And I don't think he's an exception to that rule because there is a fugue later in this piece. I don't want to get to it yet, but it seems like that's part of the joke. Only part of it. Hey,
1: hey, I have a joke. Um, since we mentioned Bach a few times, what did the mu- classical musician say before he left for intermu- intermission? I'll, I'll be, be Bach.
2: Bach. once. go Let's
1: Sorry. fire him. You, you fire him, I
2: own. I own this. It's mine. You don't. <laughs> Considering the puns
0: you've made, Steve, I don't uh, Damn it, think he you can't stand a... by me. But, yeah, right. That's true. All You're right. on your own. No leg right. to stand on. Anyway. But... Uh, this starts off with a very mystical series of arpeggios, which I rather liked. It's these rapid chord changes over the course, but it starts off in D minor, and one of the reasons I say it's mystical is because it's not a clean set of minor arpeggios. He adds the second scale degree on the first round, which gives it kind of a clumped half scale, half arpeggio feel. Same thing, slightly different different flavor. What I really like about the
1: arpeggiation here is that we've been listening to so much synth on this podcast. Thanks, John. That I feel like hearing a physical piano and hearing the actual physical impact adds to that arpeggiation in a way when it's mic'd well that we don't you obviously don't get from a, a, a keyboard. But it just it hits me kind of in my soul here because it's just physical, and
0: I, I longed for physical instruments. This is certainly maybe the first time we've heard like such an extensive use of only acoustic instruments since maybe Yugen. Yeah, Yugen was a little bit of that in a very different way. Right. I even they I think used synth at some point, maybe not. But and
1: we're often talking about how awesome things sound when they're closely mic'd, and you definitely get a sense of that here with this piano. It just, it's its not like the piano in an auditorium like we like to poke fun at. Here, it's a piano, and it's fairly isolated to itself, but it's, it doesn't feel echoey, it doesn't feel grand, so to speak, it just feels
0: um, close, impactful, and intimate. I love Which the is, tone of it. There's something like in the, in the, the way it's mic'd mm-hmm. that feels like you're sitting on the bench right next to him. But that's not just
2: what's happening. as As it's arpeggiating, uh, as it's as it's going along the scale, it also is almost fading. So that the really high register stuff feels a lot weaker, even though it should be more piercing. It's a weird effect. It feels like the mic actually is being drawn away from it. At least for me. Uh, being drawn away from the piano, where it's losing a little bit of the ground and putting a little more perspective in what we're just listening to.
0: There was a little bit of that. It could just be, yeah, it's maybe it's his dynamics on the piano. I mean, he's putting a little bit more emphasis into certain areas, a little more crescendos here and there. It's very subtle still at this point, because I did detect this still as a, a round. It got progressively more interesting of course. He throws in a sort of a diminished feel here and there, and then he moves up a fourth, and he then he does the same thing there that I said earlier on, with like the secondary of the scale kind of. um, And that's, interesting flavor of arpeggio, which I don't hear a lot. It pushes forward relentlessly, though, until you do hear the loop. There is a loop that begins. But then, by that point, you're not even focused on that because at 37 seconds, the violin enters. And it's just a long drone on our tonic of D, which of course, despite that it's holding down home, it clashes with the series of dissonant arpeggios on the piano. So so that tension can really be quite gripping. And see, what's interesting about that is the hum was so
1: so kind of atonal almost that it sounded like synth to me. In fact, my notes say synth. I really thought that it wasn't a violin, which is interesting. And I agree. It added this kind of almost sense of urgency to the track. Like it definitely,
0: without musically doing a lot, really changed the track a lot for me it's a, it's a violin that we've seen uh, a style of violin playing that we've seen a few times in terms of like you the use of harmonics i don't yeah. know if this was necessarily a harmonic but certainly the high faint screech is something that's appeared before but eventually the violin does leave the tonic but it just kind of creeps around it. it doesn't stray too far it just creeps around it in order to comp off the piano and then later i heard it doubled with maybe another violin and definitely a very faint cello it actually adds a uh, a really great contrast between the two different
2: ideas that are going on here. The piano is very playful, very enjoyable that way. It feels like a child sort of running around in a circle. I like it because as the child comes closer, there's that brief laughter and then it starts all over again, almost like a merry-go-round kind of effect. Yeah. But this glare that the violin is doing, and when it starts, you know, mumbling around and grumbling and being kind of, I guess. Mean, uh, not not quite mean, but more like a storm cloud is is definitely appearing over someone's head. That's yeah, seeing this laughter, that's seeing this fun, and it is disapproval. Well, that's what I'm getting a lot right here in
0: those strings. A lot of disapproval. Got to go going back to on. the title. It's Prelude to a Feud, and even though I mean, this is where the double entendre enters in here because the feud. Uh, John determined that's probably not even this track. That's probably the next track. But yet the fugue, as I believe is a part <laughs> of the pun there, yeah. does actually follow up with it. A minute and twenty-six seconds. It's a legit fugue. And yes, John, we finally found it. A legit fugue. I think we're like in the earliest days in this podcast, you were trying to search around, fugues. you were yes. like, you that's a kind of a fugue, because you know, it's got this super active dual solo thing going on. So yeah, you could call a lot of things counterpoint, but this is true counterpoint, and it's where you'd expect it. We see it in its purity, in a piano, in of fresh work. I mean, Bach is probably responsible for elevating the fugue to mathematical idolatry, sort of balancing the math of it and the soul of it, and improving the dialogue between each voice. But here's the thing. This is a fugue, alright, and it's marked by a series of what's called escape tones in music. You hear a minor second, the close chromaticism of the melody, and then suddenly the piano will leap to the south. I'm talking about, like, the the right hand, the, the lead voice. Even though that's kind of uh, oxymoron, because the lead voice is always interchangeable in a fugue. But the left hand is a little bit more march-like, it's not quite as interesting as the right hand, but that escape tone thing is probably something that Bach would not do, to, at least not to the extent that Chili Gonzalez is doing it, but of course that's a very subtle element here. To modern ears, this overall, the segment, can feel very of the time. There I said it. But the uniqueness of this whole thing is really the context. It's the emotional setup from the beginning of this track all the way up until this fugue that makes for a really dramatic setup so that this fugue smacks of being a quieter, more delicate section B. And also, context of what follows is very important. The fugue is essentially repeated as a string quartet in 1 minute 54 seconds. No no transition particularly, it's just a statement on the piano and then another statement in chamber work. A little bit fuller, a little bit fancier.
1: What's really interesting about this moment that leads pretty much to the outro of the track is that this is when I thought strings came in for the first time because again I really thought the hum was synth, which yeah. now of course couldn't be because there's no synth anywhere on this record. But the ending, it, it feels almost abrupt because the the strings come in and they're beautiful and they're really engaging, but there's no real resolution to them. And that was really interesting to me because typically, when a string section is brought in, even in a piece like this, usually you fill it out or do something with it or it adds to the outro. But here, it was a delightful moment that was just meant to exist, you know, as a moment within the track. It didn't really at a conclusion, it was just another part of the track.
2: Well, what this B section does is it it does make the initial A ideas, especially the piano, feel more somber, but it definitely retains some of the playful joy that was in that A section. That's what's really important. But when the string quartet comes in and nearly replicates it, the combined power of their voices does make it seem almost a mockery, almost like a lie. It, it adds a whole grayscale onto the brightness that we had in the piano work. And to have it end abruptly is a good prelude to a feud. To be that kind of meh-meh-meh where you're being openly mocking of an idea. Or if you're going to take it in the other way and there's going to be more of a somber tone to something that was once joyful... Yeah, it's doing a good job of living up to what the name of the piece actually is. Well,
0: I agree with the middle part of what you said. Um, the first part, uh, I don't believe that the beginning did have very much, that the section A really did have any playful elements to it, but I do think that this was making a mockery of it. That's the part that I agree with, the middle part, that this is essentially making a mockery of the part A because it was completely somber. I mean, if there's a joke here, then the joke in the, in the disparity between these two sections is just probably going back to the title, Pray allude to a feud and you don't know whether it's feud or fugue or whatever Uh, all i can say is that to discuss this section independently the string quartet part it was performed in a very old school and stately style if that makes any sense it's almost how i'd expect like a mid-romantic era performance to go back then before we actually had recordings and how maybe a modern period centric quartet might actually approach a piece like that i don't know it's it's really interesting and i think that I'm a little bit sad that it didn't get developed, but I do think there is some validation to that other part of the title. Prelude to a Feud, it really is just, the whole point is just to sort of get this over with. The statement, once once those two statements, the, the piano statement and the string quartet statement are over, that's it, that's done, it's, it's the end. I wasn't sure how I felt about that. It was a bit abrupt. One could argue that's just an emotional setup for the next track. The whole entire thing is to get to the Feud, which is track two, Advantage Points.
1: Yeah, I would say that that... Last point is where I'm kind of at. It, it seemed like that entire track was designed to set up this this second track, especially considering the speed at which the violin here is being bowed. It, it continues the hint of urgency I sensed in the previous track, but at an exponentially increased level here.
2: It almost feels like the previous A section from Prelude set up this argument counterpoint for the violins to make the the heavy attack that they're doing, very rapid attacks followed by almost a breathy pause, as the the violins themselves, the strings themselves, kind of like inhale before they go right back into the argument
0: itself. Right, it feels like this is this is now the counter rant. Well, essentially, for me, I'm going to be blunt, the last track was kind of a just a nice curiosity. It was a nice change in aesthetics from our last few weeks, but as always, we don't want to confuse shock and awe and uniqueness with deep-seated opinion. Track two, for me, grabbed me in a much more fundamental sense. It was string-dominated, lots of eighth notes, but that's not the whole story. The, the accents and the tension in track two are what's so compelling for me in this intro. You start off with a 7th interval, major 7th interval, the anticipation of a D minor first inversion, just between the F and the E, and then the E resolves down to D, but the accents are what make it. It's the emphasis on the 1 and slightly on the 3, despite that the violin has actually changed notes on the two and. a slightly different place. So it's like a tension, 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 home, 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 you know, that kind of thing. But in the next round, the tension resolve is a bit more satisfying. Although actually, since we're in minor, profoundly sad is what I mean to say by satisfying. (laughs) But we're in root D minor now, so that's why it's a little bit fuller. No more inversion. But it's the third round of this that really had me, because it doesn't repeat. It doesn't go back to the D minor first inversion thing. It just keeps going straight down to the fifth A minor, a very deep and serious tone in the cello as the lead violin is just kind of mulling about on the ninth. A lot of tension here, plus the quick sixteenth note thing between the B and the C. This like da da the little quick things. I love this. It's just very invigorating, and also here the emphasis is on the one, and it's also on the 2 end and also the four now for the first measure, and then it's a little bit static in the second. And measure. And then it ends, the phrase ends with this grand slur that brings us back to the repeat this union between the violin and the cello to lead us back to the D minor first inversion finally which, although it seems like a hard repeat, there's a lot more intensity there because one stringed instrument now is playing 16th notes in every single instance. So now you hear something filling the space in the offbeat or or the off semi-quaver rather, that 16th note between the successive 8th notes this dun 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 You could just lose yourself in this. And this is all happening within the first 20 seconds, so who gives a rat's behind the opening thing? I mentioned that it's all eighth notes. It's really not. There's a lot more intricacy. And there's an intensity that carries over from the first track that's amplified
1: here, which I really, really like. And we're only talking about the strings. We haven't even gotten to the piano part, which I think even further plays into this kind of urgency
2: that I was talking about in track one. With the previous track and the long strings that we were getting as sort of like a droning effect, here, the piano introduction at about 40 seconds, it starts being parallel, it starts being a little bit playful. It feels like it's trying to be just ever so slightly off-key or off-kilter or off-timing, just enough to add a little bit of discord, until it really hits those moments of contention where it just attacks with the same note over and over three, four, five, six times, to really just sort of break up the flow of all these eighth notes, sixteenth notes.
0: Everything the strings are doing gets kind of disheveled. Well, I think the only reason it sounds like it's a little bit dissonant is because the piano is striking so heavily. Again, mm-hmm. this is the kind of stuff you get from acoustic instruments that you simply wouldn't get out. You can you can strike a keyboard, a digital keyboard, to your heart's content. You're not going to get Any kind of like warping of the sound, you're not going to get any physicality because through direct input you wouldn't hear the force. You would just hear, all right, insert MIDI number of how (laughs) hard you were hitting. But, you know, he's really trying to kind of add a percussive edge and of course what better percussive actually it's the only percussive stringed instrument is the piano and so it bolsters the chord progression here and it also added a little bit of a pop touch because maybe it's just because it's in my head now because I read earlier that he was doing like Billy Joel and and Bee Gees oriented stuff but I really hear Billy Joel here just a little bit I can hear it in moments here for
1: sure Um, but also this is a good opportunity to talk about something that will be consistent throughout the entire album, and that's how well the strings and the piano play together and mix together. Yeah, you know, there's a, a playful back and forth, even if the track itself is not necessarily of a playful mood. There's definitely a playfulness between the way he
0: writes both parts, and it's so well integrated here. And it only goes up from here. Like the interplay between the accents starting yeah. at 54 seconds in, it's quite a bit grander because the accents are so much more pronounced. The piano is fulfilling its role as the great percussive instrument because it's just bashing and the, you, and you, ding, you ding, feel a ding, little ding. bit of warping at this yeah. point.
1: Yeah, the heavy strikes really sell all of the emotional I was talking
2: about before and I think just continues to add to how, how this track builds this this attack on the strings which even progresses through those those rising breaths that they do in between uh, repetitions of the main theme it's a a really interesting contrast with the B section that directly follows because the B almost on a dime just goes soft it
0: swiftly changed to almost a conciliatory kind of a theme Well, it. I think it changed to major, for one thing. It almost sounded to me like the soundtrack to Beauty and the Beast, like the really delicate moments when, you know, Bella's just pondering or maybe just the, the wide-sweeping views of the castle or something like that. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, and yet I'm being thrown back to that.
1: There are de- There's definitely a wide-sweeping nature to this B-section for sure. I mean, and I think it's... How soothing it is against everything that had come before
0: really kind of continues to further add a little bit of dissonance, like John was talking about. But it's, it's, like not just dissonance. We went from cinematic, you know. I hate comparing it to Hans Zimmer or anything like that, but you know, in that vein, but better music. This is better music, <laughs> you know. And then on the other hand, Disney, you know, that's, yeah. that's a something weird lighter contrast. and airier. Yeah. A- except for maybe one moment in the midst of section B, at, at one minute twenty-nine seconds, where we step down chromatically, and this like downward. Stepwise fashion was very romantic era classical to me. It wasn't Disney doing romantic era, which I believe would probably be where Beauty and the Beast falls. I guess, I don't know, literature has a different idea of what romantic era is than classical music. But the point is this is like legit romantic classicism like Robert Schumann for just an instant and then kind of goes back to being Disney again, because it feels hopeful here, genuinely hopeful. Yeah, it's not as aggressive
2: as the previous part of the track was. Which is why when we go back into the A section, it becomes something of an A prime, as the piano, it stretches itself into a fuller voice it seems to be more complementary of the strings as opposed to being in contention with the strings themselves Mm -hmm. the actual play style seems to also have let up a little bit of weight on those keystrokes so you don't hear the same bangs and, and actual reverberation of the finger striking the keys and this allows that contention that was earlier that anger or distrust between the two instruments to kind of simmer away to still see that they are disagreeing that they are on different sides
0: but there is a lot more middle ground between the two well the one thing i want to mention before this this return of the a section this a prime is that also there was a little bit of a transition here and it's a kind of transition that you will see later on this album um but it's used i believe twice in this particular piece it's kind of like everything melts away, because you sit with that, you know, Disney feel for a while, then it all melts down to a single violin, and I think just a tapping, like maybe the tapping of the wood on the piano or the fallboard or something, I'm not entirely sure, but it was an interesting (laughs) mellow section just in between the return of the A, so that's also a nice little breather, but then, yeah, 210, we burst right back into the A section where the piano part is denser, it's not just accenting, it's also comping, and the accents are more out of control here, he's trying to break the piano. Well, it's interesting also about that moment is the tapping is so faint here that you could just take this as
1: a moment of silence if you don't hear that tapping because it's not very loud and impactful like the tapping we get later on in the album and so you could even take it almost as a moment of silence it's definitely a moment that's meant to be a breather and I think that also adds the impact of the A prime because we have that moment to breathe from the lighter moment that when it comes
0: back with force you feel it even harder you know what else it does the piano when it does return because you feel it harder you actually I, I okay I I can't say you but I felt it as the melody at this point yeah. which is like we haven't really been talking about melody because it's a lot of like I wouldn't really call what the violins were doing with this you know rapid dun, 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 dun. it's more figuration and then I would still call the early Piano like back in the earlier sections of this the very first a prime when you first hear the piano It's comping because it's just there on accents But because the accents are so dynamic in this case, then I was starting to feel it as a genuine Melodic component because you're so used to the strings roll. They just become background you hear the piano It's it's the evolutionary element and then uh, one more return of the B section at 2 minute 40 seconds But this time with fancier trills Really fancy stuff. Curly it, cues. It's also um, a thicker piano as well, and that's why I'm really
2: happy that you brought up the melody. It's I feel like, in many ways, the A prime and B prime, the piano was informed by the strings to create said melody, and that was what was really interesting about it. It's I feel like there were so many cues taking from the initial A's and B's from the strings that translated very well to the piano
0: work, very well to the piano's actual voice. Well, it's exaggeration. The A gets really heavier, and the B gets a lot happier. I mean, it felt almost dreamlike the final time around, like this is all just some kind of fantasy land, and then you switch back between the fantasy land and then the real feud, or the feud is maybe between those two sections. But it ends, ultimately, on the happy note. The transition from uh, two minutes in is is kind of reworked here. This is the second time Time I mentioned you see it as a finale, and it's just a single violin and the piano patters lightly to the bitter end. It's almost like a classical fade out because no one actually has to touch a knob here. The musicians can just do that. Yeah, you they, can they do that on the instrument. Physical control,
1: and they're all very good. Um, and I think also this moment at the end is a precursor to what comes next. Ending on this soft note when we go into track three, "Sweet Burden," which starts slow, almost airy and weightless
0: in tone, which is kind of alluded to in the previous track, but really comes to fruition. Weightless is a good way to put it. I, there's, This is the one where I actually saw a direct comparison to an existing artist. And it's the one okay. that, again, may be in my head, oh, but this is pretty obvious, but it's in my head because I read it earlier that he was frequently compared to Eric Satie based on the album Solo Piano. But It's really evident here because this was quite a bit more impressionist. It's relatively thin, and there's some specific things that throw me back to Satie. There's the slow ambling stride. So slow it can't even be called stride anymore. Like if Scott Joplin took a Xanax or something. (laughs) It's bass, mid... Base mid, you know that down to the left hand yeah. side of the piano, then the mm-hmm. mid, but it's very slow. I'm basically outlining uh, Gymnopédies right now, which is Satie's most famous work. Which honestly, I hear a lot of similarity here. This was in a that was in a slow three four. This is in maybe kind of a medium six eight, kind of about the same thing. But what I like about it is that each phrase always feels like it has to sit and then think about what follows. You know, you feel the melody and then. Waits. There's a big breath there between each each uh, phrase, and then you hear the next thing. So it really takes its time. You can indulge. And that's why I think the waitlist is a
1: great term to use, because I do feel the space I'm in. Typically, when things are grand with these kind of instruments, we go to the cliche of in an auditorium or a lonely person. Here, it just seems to fill the space, but in a way that feels
2: satisfying. It's not just a cliche. Which is odd because I saw a lot of contemplation here. I saw a lot of weight here. It didn't feel airy. It felt like a decision was coming and that this decision was going to be impactful. It felt like there was a lot of forethought going on and a lot of internal monologue that we are just observing from the outside. And that does not lend a a breathy air. It does not feel weightless. Quite the opposite.
1: I guess the reason... I
2: can see how you would think that, and I
1: think we're in the same vein, I guess because it's it feels weightless to me because the contemplation has no – it's meditative instead of fraught or panic-inducing or panic-stricken. It, Matt's it, got the words today. <laughs> it, just, it just feels peaceful, and so we're coming at very thought-focused emotions from different places that I think are
2: both equally valid based on where you are mentally at the time. Though I think we both end up at the
0: same sort of area when
2: the strings flow in. On let's, on
0: top. let's not even say strings because it's one string, and I—oh, uh, this was a big turning point. I mean, not turning point. It, it was an embellishment. Tr- uh, 33 seconds in, the cello comes in. Oh, I thought maybe it was a viola, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's a cello. It reflects pretty much what the piano was doing before, and the piano lays back a bit, and once the cello takes— that melody. Oh, it was phenomenal. And the cello doesn't, it's not a prominent feature on this album in too many cases. There's actually only one other track, I believe, where the cello is this prominent. But this was chilling. I thoroughly enjoyed the way the
2: cello usurped the piano here, kind of float around it, took it over and allowed it to sort of fade away because the piano did not want to go forward. The piano wanted to stay in its very contemplative state, whether it was airy or meditative Mm -hmm. or whether it was being all deep and dark and foreboding. It wants to think. It, It wants to be there and the cello is pulling it forward. It's leading it forward. <laughs> they want
0: to be where they are making music in
2: their separate places. But no, and, and there was a little bit of resistance, which I think is why I enjoyed when the piano really does seem to fall off and the cello takes center stage. Until
0: you get that four-note refrain piano just ringing out. The transition at yeah. one minute and four seconds. Now, I, I don't know whether to call this a prominent transition. I want to say it's prominent because... In many ways, it's just space. Like, it's not an actual transition in terms of, for a certain uh, duration of time, he'll be working through the chords in order to bring about the following section. Instead, he likes some fairly harsh cuts, but he fills it with very much needed space. So it's not really a transition, it's just the piano taps by themselves, and in this we breathe, and then after a little bit, We get our new thing, but it's a a nice palate cleanser. Even still, though, it's not that new, the thing that we get. It's the same exact motif. It's this one... Four, five, and one. Ah, but it's it develops further than that. It's 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 still an A, an A prime, really, but you gotta love certain moments here, like one minute and 43 seconds, the climaxes in the melody. This B-flat minor-ish thing, maybe not even, I didn't even hear the D-flat in there. So, just that moment, it's a great climax, and then the melody starts to die down, and eventually we do get our true B section, which begins at two minutes and five seconds. And the B section, I think,
1: is what gives John's impression of the A a little more credence because this part is definitely darker in tone, though. I think it could also validate my perspective because it's a shift and Uh. the shift also essentially there's a lot of interpretive freedom here, but I do like that every time that we're hinting on a darker tone theme, and this continues throughout the album, the piano is always leading
2: that charge and doing some really interesting interesting things with the chord work. Well, here it's actually kind of nicely background and simple, just the dun-dun-dun-dun that's used to fill in the gaps of what the string work is doing. Those, the little touches, very simple. That was actually extremely impactful for me because mm-hmm. it was another one of those moments where it's broaching silence and having silence around the voices of the cello around the voices of the strings in this album is Actually
0: quite profound in a lot of ways. I would agree with that because for me this I was less decided on this particular sections Feeling or what it was trying to convey except that I really liked where it went mm-hmm. the the development here leads us to another great Climax at 2 minutes and 26 seconds the C sus 2 here the strings just they quiver at this moment. I, I will repeat that the build up to this climax was a little less decisive to me because I wasn't sure about the direction of it, but it, it almost felt like an excuse for a climax, but once it was reached, I didn't care. But that to me was
2: only half of how good it was, of how amazing it was, because previously, like I said, the piano was being a light touch to fill in the silence. Well here at that moment, which I, was a great moment, the strings seamlessly take over for it, and it seem to actually emerge out from that moment itself, mm. to not just be a dun dun, but to be a back and forth, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a seesaw. Yeah, and and that that little transition right there, it it completely changed the coloration of what was
0: going on. That was almost a eureka moment for this piece for me. Mm. Alright, we all have our own Eureka moments, but the progression of this really is fascinating. It's not something we encounter a lot. I mean, yeah, from 2 minutes 33 seconds on, the... The, this is what I've described as like a seesawing violin. We work our way through a part C, sort of. I guess there aren't too many C sections on this album. That's an interesting observation because I feel so much of this is boils down to A, B, A prime, maybe a B prime. Bs are usually a little bit more stable than the As, not in every case. I don't know, but this is a C, and I gotta confess, maybe at this point it was a little bit meandering for me, except for the dramatic swell at three minutes and fifteen seconds that brings us back to. A, or rather, A-prime specifically.
2: I, I, I don't want to make an argument that it feels more like the C was an A-adjacent piece. Okay. It, it wasn't as clear-cut as it's different from the A's or the B's, it's not that unique because it feels like the piano and strings have merely just changed roles. The strings are doing what the piano was not to a T, but close enough to be a good homage to that A section. The piano was doing what the strings were doing previously, what the cello was doing previously, and being flushed out and being the theme of what was going on. Because of that, it wasn't just a C, it was, it was, if you're going to use letters, CA, eh, or AC, or A some kind of prime. It's kind of moot, but th- to be it's, honest... It's, I was th- accepting of it because of this, because I felt like it was just that flip. I thought it felt perfectly in sync with everything else.
0: Some people appreciate the innards, some people appreciate the climaxes. I can be kind of a sucker for climaxes, and it, normally what's most, more important to me are the transitions, but there's always that fine line of when transitions become meandering or not. I will say, though... In the midst of it, I was questioning it just a little, but I do think the ultimate transition was a major, major success. It was, it was marvelously done, threaded through, as Matt said, off air. But I'm not sold that we actually went anywhere for the duration of that part that I'm calling Part C. It almost felt like we didn't return from a big journey, we took a walk around the house, but then we burst through the front door with a dozen roses. And so, for me, that is kind of a success in the end, because who cares where you've been? It only matters what you did. And
2: the finale is actually really indicative of that sort of imagery. The the, the rising crescendo that he ends on is is really just extremely satisfying. It's a great
0: period on this piece. Um, Even just before that, I want to say one more thing about the performance of this, because you kind of have to talk about that in tandem with the actual composition here. The performances are really incredible, and in this case, the overlapping vibratos of the strings was one of the most gripping parts just prior to that crescendo, because they were all vibratoing so heavily and in the in-between notes, though they were kind of, like, overlapping with each other and creating a lot of dissonance. So it almost didn't feel particularly controlled, but I think that was the idea, and I liked it that way. It was a very cool effect, which ultimately leads you to that final quick crescendo at the very, very end. So let's go to track four, Green's Leaves. Another pun I'm led to believe, a pun off of, of course, Greensleeves, which is the old English folk tune that's been around probably since the 1600s, heavily used as a Christmas carol, or at least was published as a Christmas carol in the 1800s.
1: And what's really interesting, kind of relating to our topic from last week... We went on the search to make sure this wa- that Green Sleeves was what we thought it was, and more importantly, who had done it because there were so many versions of it. Yeah. and I we discovered collectively that Olivia Newton-John had done a version of it. And I had with never that one. I never heard that one. And I, it sounded familiar once I heard it. But I was unaware of it, at least that it was by her, and it was quite striking and beautiful, so I suggest that you check that out because it was really fascinating. I'm
2: on record. I was actually singing along
1: by the chorus. You knew I it? I didn't discover it. I knew it. Well, yeah, but did you know it was Olivia, Olivia Newton-John?
0: Yes, I did. Okay. Uh, yeah, but see, I, I didn't, I, I had heard it, but I didn't know that. I just knew it as, well, not nameless, although sometimes earlier on I might not have been able to recall that the name was Greensleeves, but I knew it as kind of just this, this disembodied melody that I feel like I've always known. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, that's green sleeves for you, but this is not green sleeves. This is Green's Leaves. And I didn't see a lot of musical connectivity to that, at least not not apparently. It was a wonderful play, though, on what I thought was going to be a dark and plodding track based on the intro, but it quickly turned into something else. But before I get into that, just to talk about the very beginning here, it starts off as a rhythmically thinner piece than the way I described the beginning of track two and how it was like eighth notes, but then I got into the meat of it. Well, this is kind of like that. It's even thinner than that rhythmic setup, but not with quite as much drama as track two. It's in four four and the four, the quarter note, is very self parent here because that's the pulse it's just this set of marches that's the figuration one, two, three, four. One, two, three, and four one two three four one two three and and we just kind of pause on that for a moment it's 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 quite nice but it is still very thin at this point but then 19 seconds in the third round i think of this by this point you get something new and this is what the track quickly turned into. 19 seconds is pretty quick, right? A flourishing, fiddle-like violin, which I know is kind of redundant, but let's just, for a very classical album that seems very like, Western, well obviously we're still Western here, but Europe influenced, this to me was very America actually is very Aaron Copland. I felt like we were suddenly in Jeremiah Johnson, you know, in the 1840s. It's the the way the violin is playing is just so American folk like that it's the second week in a row where I feel like the American heartland song, uh, this discussion we had last week in Sting, whose title indicates something more English, I hear it being more in the Great Plains. It's a weird sensation. I definitely see where you're coming from with that. Have you seen Homeward Bound? Yes. (laughs) Actually, that's... What kind of
2: monster doesn't see Homeward Bound? (laughs) Okay. You don't have to see any of the sequels.
0: I will... Sometimes I will shed a tear at that score, honestly. It feels yeah. very... Only Aaron, sometimes? Aaron Copland inspired. It's Shadow that really gets... I minute. have a couple of I college know, no, no, roommates that I can actually verify they saw me shed a tear at that score. If you want me bawling on this podcast, we continue talking about Homeward
1: Bound, but oh, I'd okay. rather not. Um, but yeah, I think that also this track, it continues to evolve the playful nature that I, we've already cited several times. But the inherent unabashed joy and brightness to this track... Really is not something we've seen yet. Everything else that seemed more positive or bright
0: was there were hints of other things. Here it's unabashedly joyous. That's why I feel like, I mean, it's not like it's a sudden change, it's just you don't expect that something like this violin would show up over this you know, relatively plotting figuration. And uh, I'm sticking with the Jeremiah Johnson as far as our movie reference. I omit Homeward Bound because it's just too too orchestral. (laughs) Jeremiah Johnson has got that, that's got the feel of what this violin is doing. And it's dare I say, kind of danceable. Uh, it approaches in moments, for that.
1: sure. Yeah. It
2: approaches that, but it, was, it wasn't until the piano actually takes up the calling and starts working in its own version of the same theme that really it felt like it was hitting that Americana feel that you were talking about. Because the piano, its version is nearly as fun as what the... Fiddle
0: string was doing. Like, I guess uh, I guess we'll call it the fiddle string. And it kind of has to do with the accents It's an, it's an example of what Matt pointed out as the great interplay between the two instruments if they're not working off a Pitch they're working off a rhythm and that's what's shining here is the rhythm.
2: I'm especially fond of when it feels like it It, it kind of takes that back step and allows the strings to resurge But it feels like it's got the need to interrupt the strings every once in a while like interject and just be like oh No, 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 no. Okay and just do that one just just moment of compliment, but almost rudely, just still playfully, but almost
0: rudely. I love that kind of personality that's because going on. Because it's steeped in syncopation. I mean, honestly, if you could almost just take the rhythms themselves and omit all the instruments and then translate that to a really, really great drum pattern, like that's what you'd have if, with everything combined together. And I just, that's why I kind of understood why the time signature and tempo had to be what it was in the beginning. You know, it it, it makes sense by by this point in the piece because it gets so, you had to start thin to work up into these complex little rhythms. And what I think is also really fascinating about this track is, of all the tracks we've gotten so far,
1: once we move to that point after the 19 seconds, I wouldn't say it's predictable, but it's not full of surprises. Like, there's no shock and awe here. We're just kind of along for the ride. Oh, I would call those rhythmic Changes some shock and awe a I, little bit. I
2: mean, I Doses. guess,
1: but ba- okay, in the initial moments they happen, but cons- considering how consistently they happen after that, though done in different ways, I, there's no shock and awe beyond that. I'd say maybe after 30 to 40 seconds, you're just along for
0: a ride, the ride and enjoying and absorbing everything that happens Well, let me happening. give you an example of what I feel some shock and awe here, because okay. at a minute and eight seconds, you get what almost feels like kind of a solo, but it obviously was probably pre-prepared material because there are some moments here that just line up too perfectly. The piano states its theme with the p- pizzicatos marching in the background, and then the violin follows it up with its own solo, and it repeats the phrase that the piano just did for the most part. Um, but then after the second phrase of that violin quote-unquote solo, there's a climax here, what I call climax, at one minute and 21 seconds where the piano is Just juts in. This is the interruption that John I'm referring to, I think. He interrupts to strike the same exact note as the violin plays in this just wonderfully playful moment. And to Mm -hmm. me, this was shock and awe, because when I heard that, I was beaming. It was just such a giddy moment in the piece. I guess, uh, for me, shock and awe is something that's surprising,
1: whereas that moment was just... Uh, awe-inspiring and enveloping, so I'm using different terminology to describe the same experience. Fair enough. But that said, that moment was pretty cool, especially considering it also continues to exemplify the thing I've been talking at length about with this integration between the two instruments, but also a thing that we don't really get when these instruments are in other songs. Typically when these instruments are dropped in some of the pop stuff that we've
0: done, There's not this kind of integration and playfulness, they're just kind of there. Well, there's some other moments here, like even further along, there's another repeat with two violins this time, or maybe it's the violin and the viola, I'm not sure. They were playing, I think, in thirds, or they were so close in pitch, it almost sounded like a single violin doing double stops. But it was absolutely gorgeous, it was a great moment for me. I was kind of still in shock and awe stage. Uh, But there were other moments here where I heard different things, like back to the Billy Joel again in the piano, because his syncopation occasionally steps out of of the character of this Aaron Copland environment Mm -hmm. that I had kind of set up. But then, you know, there's also complete departures, like not just subtle departures, but total departures, like a pure string quartet for a little while, very solemn at this point, before one more reprise of the dramatic, accent-rich A-prime, which you just gotta love the finale in this piece, because the the, the final round of syncopation, to me, was really probably the best of the batch, and it just finishes with this resounding E minor 11th chord and then he reiterates the chord in the upper octaves of the piano like he doesn't want it to be done but it all does happen and wrap up pretty quickly. It's a sudden but pronounced finale that I really enjoyed.
1: Yeah and I think ultimately for me I I wouldn't deny your shock and awe I think because I just let the track wash over me and experienced it there was no surprise because I kind of just opened myself up to it completely and that's just a perspective thing not so much a comment on the track and just how i was kind of my body was ready as they say like Like, you know i was just
2: welcoming it just like
0: seeing his different styles yeah
2: there's there's certain aspects like in the b section when you get this kind of bambi morning moment going on right there that spirals (laughs) downward into a real slumbering feel like i'm it's familiar that's that's one thing i think that I guess the storm seeing that, I guess, was a little bit different. You know, like, maybe I think that's it. It's extremely familiar. Yeah. You start mentioning, yeah.
0: like, Aaron Copland, Homeward Bound, right, Jeremiah yeah. Johnson. I love and these Bambi. movies, and Bambi. Like, yeah. it's,
2: it's that it's right before Bambi The familiarity opens his eyes.
0: reaches back into, the, like, your
1: earliest memories. You're pulling, like, this kind of almost nostalgia for something, even though it is, it's wholly, wholly its own thing. <sighs> it It's. Just slightly plucking
2: on those nostalgia chords. And I like Green when a composer leaves, has its control over it. Green's Leaves, like, <laughs> is by far my favorite piece on the album. Like it's just it's, it's one of them for me, but not my favorite. It's too saccharine and sweet for me to say anything but because in all the other tracks there's an ominous feeling, there's a darker feeling, there's some sort of counterpoint to
0: anything happy going on. I gotta Here, be honest. It's just pure happiness. I'm enjoying so far all of these tracks in fairly equal capacity. We'll kind of size this up later as to how this really factors in on the album as a whole, but let's go on to track five, Freudian Slippers, which is as honey as as it gets. Um, And by the way, you can buy those slippers. They exist. I was unsure as to whether this was, like, a Chili Gonzalez specific thing, and it clearly is not. It is it's not. It is a gag that's been made before many a time. And those slippers, if you search them on Google, really, really look like Statler and Waldorf. They're very Muppety, yes. Very Muppety. Um, this track is not Muppety. This track... No. Um, it does carry over some of the sweet nature from the previous track, at least in the very beginning. No, no, they can't even say that. Really? I think that the for a track with such a funny title, this is a rather solemn intro. I mean... It's a, it's a, this is the very beginning. It's a solitary descent on the piano, and it goes like this. A, G, F, E-flat. That's a strange one. And then D. So, just to sum that up. I mean this is a phrygian descent as d minor does seem to be our home. That's where we land, but that that e flat really throws us off. That's what makes it phrygian, but then the the major one, major 4, and then the b or d diminished here. This this chord progression is extremely cagey. I feel like I'm being stalked or that it's making me feel like the stalker because that's the beauty of music with no lyrics. I often find it's more capable of controlling how I feel, or what I'm seeing, because with a vocalist, it's vicarious. They're feeling something because they're singing to me, so there must be some empathy there, but with this piece, I was there, feeling what he felt, whatever that is. It's almost as if the two hands are in contention with one another,
2: by themselves. The the higher register is actually being dragged down by what the low register is doing. It's it's being forced to, you know, keep going deeper and darker, and that's why as it starts repeating, it starts going further and further down the
0: scale itself. Yeah, this is the the opportunity to really use the word plotting, I think That's the only way I could describe the intro and uh, deeper into the piece as well. I
1: think to clarify what I was talking about in the beginning, I don't think that any of this sounds sweet. I think there's a residual sweetness carrying over from the previous track, but it's quickly dispelled within moments. I think it just lingers in the air because the song does start out slow and
0: plodding. For a millisecond you think maybe we're getting more of what we got and then it's instantly dashed. Well, had that E-flat been an E, I would have probably been a little more on your side because you expect that it's going to be just, you know, a 5-4-flat-3-2-1 uh, instead it's 5-4-flat-3-flat-2-1 and that's really ugh. it's It's strange because there are also some very Beethoven moments in this, like his level of, you know, the, one of the most I guess characteristically dark and brooding composers of them all. That that's the closest comparison that I really have at my disposal to describe this. So it is very plotting, and the strange descent returns, though not as strange as it was for as as it was in the intro, and I'll admit that. Let's go to fifty seven seconds in, because this is where we get our A prime, which well, it's another level of strange, because it introduces strings, but this is where I would pretty confidently use the word harmonics. It's those screechy, slightly scratchy tones. Again, taking what the piano was doing all by itself earlier, but doing it on its own. And it's, oh, it's unsettling. It's not just the fact that the
2: strings are doing what the piano's doing, falling down, but they're also fighting against what's going on. There are moments where it seems to break free from just that downward spiral where it's it's... It's very ah, confrontational, and I love the conflict that's going on between, uh, as I'm seeing it, the three different sections, the left hand, the right hand, and the strain section. So with everything that's going on, if there's a real head being built up in all of this kind of darkness that's developing. Well, and you get a real sense of
1: the plotting nature and the punctuating moments that we only see more of as we go through this track and the album, it really started here. You know, th- those highlighted moments where they're using a sense of drama, either based on how the uh, actual physical impact of the keys or the
0: strings are or what they're doing to them, like the screeching that Steve was talking about. Well, in this case, the screeching has supplanted all other uh, all other focuses at this moment. It's It's... It's not something, again, that we have not seen, but it's utilized in a very strange sense here because it, it, it's present for a good portion of this piece. Let's get into a couple of other things, though, because after, like, maybe 1 minute and 36 seconds in, we have a true transition. A true transition this time that is it conflicts with my earlier uh, statement that he likes to use a lot of just space as transition and there's not really a transition present but here you have these kind of warm enveloping string quartet through lines that carry us peacefully over to part b and that is a bit of an exception but then you get part b at one minute and 47 seconds and this wasn't so peaceful it was lethargic maybe but it was worrisome it was like to me music of the Rut. The piano is much more march-like here, slow pace though, and then the violins, they're back to their screechy range, but they're quite a bit more melodic now. That's one of the reasons why I like this section, because there were those modern moments, those modern flavors in the melody and just about everything else. All, all throughout the 220s, for instance, it, it felt a lot like Goldfrapp's Tales of Us, uh, which we did way back in episode 64, and just feeling a slight bit more hopeful here. It starts to try to drag you out of this rut. It does a good job of
2: really showing the conflict between the two ideas, between the low register piano and how it it's, it's sort of representing inevitability versus the hope of change that the strings are doing. I was getting actually um, like a real old school like Oliver Twist kind of a vibe to this scene work and like that idea of... Yes, you have uh, that that bright beacon of hope surrounded by a lot of grayscale and rain and terrible, unfortunate situations and the sort of things that make you go, oh, that's unfortunate. I'm sorry that had to happen to somebody <laughs> Like, it really was great, especially when it culminated at about the two-former. You get that piano doom note right after a really high rise
0: of string work that just feels like it's a... It's almost like a gut shot. You know what? For me, the doom note was not the piano itself in that moment. and It was actually more like 2 th- minute and 36 seconds. Okay, we I were, we were 40 We were 40 seconds off. I go with issues. Off. you have perfected numbers. That's, that's fine, but it's another eerie use of the space transition. So this is the exception that proves the rule. In other words, this is back to the thing I was citing earlier in the album, which is this whole section just exists as a gap, and only subtle things occur in it, just that long harmonic It's just holding that out very delicately, but then the piano robs it because it piano enters in and it's building to a trill which was really really dynamic as well because it got a lot of crescendo there and then we kind of rework the chord progression of the A section back in but this really is almost like an A double prime because it's been both bolstered up and reduced to its basic components at the same time it's delivered quite differently you have uh, this is two minutes and 51 seconds the opening chord of this return of the A double prime is D minor ninth for starters which is a lot denser and then Then from that point, each chord is like hammer swoop. (laughs) <laughs> hammer swoop, because you have all these, like, piano flourishes. So this was true drama to me. It, it, like, reduced it back down to its basic components, but it was also a lot more impactful. And then you have other things, too, like the rapid hammers on the piano, this, like, where he just wants to emphasize one particular chord, and he can't get enough of it. And this is why, truthfully, this section affected me somewhat more closely on this album, because there's things he does in the rhythm that are actually a little bit similar to things that I've been trying to write lately at piano, and that's a position that I've not been in before. It is unusual how it feels like the piano is almost
2: browbeating what the strings are doing, because at approximately 3 minutes 30 seconds, or I I I guess Steve will correct me when I'm done with this, (laughs) the piano wood tap enters the equation. This is my favorite part of the whole track,
1: because it takes this looming drama that's sort of there and really kind of old school theater style draws it out like you're watching a dramatic play. And that tapping, we're pretty sure, is the sound of the foot pedal both being pressed heavily and then lifted off quickly so it slams back down or up or however you want to look at it. Yeah. But this tapping really gives the sense of echoey footsteps in a very ambient movie, and I really love that
0: visualization that is created here. I'm in agreement with you in that it was my favorite use of space yet on this album, because that piano just cuts out, the violins die down, and they come together to hold that pivot chord, and on that you just start knocking. Pum. Pum and it echoes really dramatically because it sounds like it's very closely mic'd. That's the focus all of a sudden. And then the closing material here is insanely minimalist. I mean, this may be my favorite yet in terms of originality on this album because just the layering here, how everything— I mean, it, it the details happen almost faster than I can cite, and yet it happens at such an ambling pace. I mean, that's a very, very strange position I haven't been in before. A lot of detail for something that is very slow and delicate. There are hints throughout the end of this track that are almost like R&B and classical all at once, because the piano re-enters with that, you know, those really jazzy chords at times, and it's a generally dark, cinematic flair before the prepared piano returns at the tail end. Actually, I've, I find it to be like the piano's running out of steam. All this energy
2: that it's expending on being stronger than the strings has worn it out at this point. And it just keeps going further and further down. It's almost not falling asleep, just it keeps throwing these punches at the strings. And it, now these punches aren't hitting nearly as hard, and they start missing. And the strings are—by the time you get to the end, by the time you're— past the four minute mark, by the time you're actually going into the real closing material, the strings are starting
0: to gain their strength. They're starting to gain the voice that we've heard in previous pieces, but have not heard here. I like this analogy that you're using where where the piano is losing steam because it's almost like the piano is dying and that those taps are its last breaths. Because it does get Ooh, one last analogy, little thing. One last little thing. Well, it's your analogy. I'm putting credit where credit's due. Yeah, but you're I, adding to it. it, I, am adding to it. I am adding to it. We're working together. But the tail end here, you get that, you get a little bit of an embellishment. You get the, sl- the last breaths are the piano actually getting a little bit louder. And this is where you hear the step down and the release step-down Which release, is what I was initially describing. Initially yeah. describing. But here, it, I noticed there's a crescendo in that. Either that it was more closely miked or that it was being controlled by his foot re- literally to get louder at, as the last moment of the piece. It's not
1: often we get to take, talk about an instrument being used in an unorthodox way.
0: In music, we we just don't do that as much as we used to. I'm gonna tell you exactly what the difference is. We do find that. I remember bringing this up on previous cases because, of course, prepared piano is not a new thing. It's been used a lot in a lot of 20th century music, mm-hmm. um, especially like since the 1940s. But and when we so we see it in in albums that we do. But the difference is that we usually see it in just the most fleeting of moments. Like, this is a cool thing, I'm gonna do it. It's back to our age-old example of the saxophone that appeared in the end of that Robbie Williams song on on Take the Crown, you know? Hey, here's a cool thing, and it feels tasteful, so it feels like it's adding something, but it's not composition, it's not the same thing. It's a soundbite, and that's the the end of it. This is clearly not that, it's true integration.
2: Which makes the following track, track six, solitaire, For me, personally, and I know I don't actually speak for these two, but for me, a bit of a disappointment because Solitaire, well, it kind of lives up to its name as a piano-specific piece. There's no string work. And the reason why I find this so disappointing is because we spent the last five tracks talking about how cool the integration has been between... The string section and the piano section. When you start utilizing different aspects of the strings themselves. The cellos or high attacks or long drawn out drones that starts feeling like techno. In comparison to what the piano work is doing. Working on the higher register, lower register. When the left hand and the right hand start arguing. Here, without those strings, from the
0: first few moments to the end of the piece,
2: I was left wanting for them.
0: Well... I, first of all, completely disagree with you, but it has to do with the characterization of this particular piece. I think if you visualize it, and I think it's appropriate to do so as an interlude, then it makes a lot of sense, and certainly it makes sense, to melt away everything that is not Chili Gonzalez himself. It's a little isolated statement of his own, and I have other reasons why I like it, and I don't believe it's as uh, simple, you know, or, or, or throwaway as, as, as you make it out to be. Yeah, I mean, it would be like if on Prager's album we said the
1: interlude we didn't enjoy as much because... It just seemed thinned out or more basic than anything else. Yeah. It's a similar kind of argument. I feel like the fact that Solitaire... First of all, let's start talking about the track a little bit and not just defending its placement. And we can continue to defend it as we talk. Because what's interesting about Solitaire is that in its pattern, it feels almost like a ragtime track. Except for how slow it's moving, and it, Mm -hmm. because of that, gives it this kind of creepier vibe, this darker
0: vibe, because of how it's structured. Yeah, ragtime is one of the places that I'd put it, um, but yeah, ragtime in a more serious setting. Yeah. like well, what was that what did I say what, a previous track was Scott Joplin on Xanax? Yeah, well, this is Scott Joplin on something else. he's he's maybe he's got acid. a bottle on acid or maybe a a bottle of vodka, I don't know. it's a, it's a very self-serious kind of track, but also there's another influence. Um, there's something here that really rang of Bela Bartok, like it was drawing from something over in the Eastern Bloc a little bit. We get that a little further on the album as well, but it reminded me of a piece that Bela Bartok wrote called Six Romanian Folk Dances that I've been obsessed with for a very long time, and this felt like it was borrowing a little bit from that. Something that is a bit more serious despite having an overall... Uh, approachable structure, if that makes any sense, just because of, you know, there's a little bit of that, not quite stride, but almost like old vaudeville or modern reinterpretation yeah. of that era. And I I guess I would only agree that this track has kind of stumped me more than most tracks in terms of, like, describing it uh, section by section, which is a little more challenging here, despite that I think this might be closest to my own piano playing style. Like, I'm writing a piece right now that sounds a little bit like this, and it's weirding me out a bit. It's not that I, it's not that similar. I wouldn't be stepping on toes, but like it's one thing to hear a piece of music that's close to my tastes. It's another to hear a piece of music that's actually in my wheelhouse, and they're not necessarily the same thing. And I maybe have never experienced this before in my life. I I would just say that from your description
2: and the way you're quantifying the track, I don't see them actually lining up. And let me explain. You're saying breather or interlude or something like that. I don't see that with this piece. I see that as a firmly integrated track into the rest of the album. It does not feel like an interlude. It feels like a a piece unto itself and not meant to be a breather or anything like that, meant to be more of a statement for the piano. But, and this is where the big but comes in, there's two big factors and I already went into the strings being missing but the other piece that's missing is the lack of conflict between anything. The only other time we got a lack of conflict was in green's leaves and there was still a little bit of uh, contention when you're Looking at that kind of sour note at the end of the four measures of that background string work or the overall dour-ish nature of the background string work, there was still a little bit of it's not perfect. There's still a little bit of lack of perfection. Here, I don't feel like there's any part that is that little bit of sour that's kind of necessary to put a lot of the beauty involved
0: in the piece itself. That's why I'm saying it's stumping me a little bit, because it's like existing between two worlds. For me, this piece—I mean, there are some things that do dissect it a little bit, like the trill, the the piano trill, the dog shake moment, the dog yeah, shake which moment. is it's actually is... a really nice way to put uh, a piano trill, especially considering that it is a little has a little bit more of a high attack, and he really he really relishes in in those trills, and the way they intersect these phrases is absolutely glorious. But here's the thing: I wish you had the frame of reference for the six Romanian folk dances, like I said before, because it's very short pieces that are ba- basically Bella Bartok trying to pull from, I don't think he was originally from Romania, uh, I think he was from Hungary, but he was he was borrowing from Romania in this instance, and he was pulling from existing folk songs, and he turned them into his own thing, and they didn't have to last for all that long. And this is not a very long track, so it has a little bit to do with the track's length, but, like, some of of the, uh, these six Romanian folk dances, they are just, like, the statement of a theme. It still feels complete, but it's, like, a theme, and it ends. There's not a lot of, like... Section B, Section C, or anything of that nature. It's just a little bit of developmental material and a little bit of alternate phrasing. It's the kind of thing that you get in many composers' slightly less popular works, which are no less innovative. They just serve a different purpose.
1: And I would say that also... The brevity leads me to want to call it an interlude, but also the fact that interludes don't ha- can be a breather or a moment, and still feel integrated to the greater arc of the album and feel like a complete piece. Again, I referenced the Prague interlude; yeah. felt like a complete piece that just kind of went on forever that they faded out on. But it still felt like a complete piece in the sense that it didn't feel disjointed, it didn't feel unwelcome, it didn't feel like it wasn't part of the album. And I think I would make the same argument for this. In fact, I would say because it had this echoey kind of hollow nature to it, that's a through line through the background of some of the tracks we talked about previously, this kind of darker motif. And that's definitely here,
2: which thematically does integrate it to previous tracks. But wedged through
0: that approachable style.
2: Right. And that's where I would say, while I do enjoy the piece itself, I'm not actually complaining that this is poor music. I want to make that distinctly clear. But it feels like there's a big hiccup in the theme that we were getting, in the story, I guess, that we were getting. Because we've been making a lot of illusions of... Or at least I personally have been making a lot of illusions of discord between the strings and the piano. Like there is some sort of conflict going on between the two because of the way they're playing off on each other. But when they are working in tandem and working in unison... They work so well, and it feels like
0: they're coming together and fulfilling a greater purpose. All right, well, we're going a little bit around in circles right now. But I want to—all right, I understand. I'm hearing you. I'm hearing your grievances right now. That's my issue. That's my issue here. But, all right, here's one thing we did discuss off-air, and I think it's going to start becoming relevant as we go through these later tracks. The difference that we have, um, by canon, made between the two terms, arc and theme, on this podcast, because we have separate categories for each when we get to the year in review— are, I think, a lot less relevant on this album, because for a classical album of this style, it's very hard to see theme unless you're seeing those musical themes. You see it as the pairing between—well, the pairing was always there between the two instruments, but that doesn't mean you can't have one being the the spotlight. And he clearly is the spotlight. He's the it guy. But then, this track also introduces themes and musical themes that I do believe make appearances almost immediately following, such as, for instance, uh, the. The romanian folk dance thing i hear the same exact thing in track seven odessa because this track will first of all just as a place name odessa is in ukraine which is uh pretty close to romania so I, f- I feel like i'm in the right part of the world and indeed i do hear some similar themes because track 7 This, to me, was another Bartok track. It was another Bella Bartok track in that it was a slow 3-4, like a really slow 3-4, but I kind of think he wanted to count this in six just to keep time. Uh, But then the violins that enter in here, they keep with the Romanian folk dance feel. Seriously, listen to number three on that six Romanian folk dances, because there are Six of them. They're usually played in a in a set. Number three is a track called "Standing Still." Uh, preferably, anyone listening, please listen to the version with the violin and not the piano reduction, because even though they're very similar, the piano the violin just brings out something specific. And this has the same kind of Eastern Bloc esque feel but a little bit more dramatic this time. So it's just expanding on the idea that was introduced in Solitaire, but it's taking it a step further. And so to me, that really lends to a very strong arc as well as a strong theme. And also, the somber tone
1: of the track, I think, really lends itself to that Eastern Block feel as well. I mean, it just... It has this gray feeling when you're listening to it. And sort of the previous track in moments, but here for sure, I think that Eastern Block feel also gives me a feel of gray rainy or dark. And there has been a through line of darkness in some shape or form throughout the majority
0: of this record. Well, yeah, and the reason for that is, of course, the violin again. It's these dramatic grace notes that are in the melody. This like, da-da-da, da-da-da, I love that, that, That passion in that singular moment, every single time he does that, and then when the piano takes it, then the strings get fuller and fuller, but just as a solitary, you know, instrument, just a solitary single violin against the backdrop of the piano, the violin is suddenly now kind of the spotlight figure that the piano was in the previous track.
2: But you're also glossing over one of the important parts of that violin. That... Well, I just said da- that. <laughs> The way it dies at the end, it gets suppressed downward with almost just the silence itself. As the attacks become fewer and less pronounced, It it falls all the way back down. And then picks itself back up and goes right back into the theme mm. it was building. That, to me, was where that Eastern European like pragmatism shows up and goes, no, you can't be happy. It's no. gray out. It's cold. We're gonna have potatoes and vodka, and that's it. Like it's a stereotype. Granted, I'm going with a stereotype. You are right no here. piano player. Go but home. But it's gotta. Very... I don't understand why did you say potatoes twice though. I'm confused. It was. It's kind of got a potato. Potato. It's got a. It's got a a Tolstoy kind of a feel going on with it like there's there is a nobility I won't even say beauty I feel nobility because of how pronounced it is almost almost chest beating it's very sharp very clear but it's not alluring in any way so I can't really see the beauty but that nobility that's built and then destroyed and then when it goes into the ace Prime, I guess, and the piano and string work actually switch off on one another. That's where
0: I said the strings get fuller, yeah. Yeah,
2: but it's the piano that's actually now doing that... Yep. And it's almost like instead of the individual we got with the string all solo doing this idea, doing this theme, the piano feels more...
0: More like it's it's a representation of a group or an idea well, or yeah, something like thing. that. They're, they're working together to achieve the goal that the last track did in a somewhat superficial way, but introed this track too. But it's in the B section
2: that I think your, your choice of the words like beauty really start to shine. Because well, <laughs> everything becomes extremely delicate. Without the force of that A
0: section, it almost feels like it should be at odds with what the A was doing. The B section does take quite a bit of a turn, I mean it's it's almost like a John Williams turn, but there's also something really familiar about this, and I realized that it actually rang of West Side Story's Maria. So actually, to say John Williams is really a sidestep, but him, like many other composers, borrowed heavily from Leonard Bernstein. And honestly, I hear the almost the exact melody in that second part of Maria within this thing. This da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, I hear that, except without the final two notes. It doesn't resolve, but that little downward thing. I know that's a small component, but and that motif here is frequently used to the point where I, I guess because I've heard Maria since my earliest memories, I just can't really escape comparing the two, and it's used repeatedly here between the piano and the violin and just about anything, everywhere, constantly, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it, it, it adds a more romantic
1: air to this part of the song Which I think is an intention that really is reinforced by when we return to the A after this part. Because those no-you-can't-be-happy moments that John was describing feel so much more crushing now. They feel almost heartbreaking because of that brief romantic aside we
2: get that allows our brain to ruminate in a different way. The more delicate note work is still present in this A double prime. Uh, Because I still say when A, A prime, I'm going to attest to that till the end of time. This A double prime has some of the B section actually thrown into it, integrated into it to, to really sort of expand upon the nobility of that first A. But, the yes, the darkness, the crushing parts are so much more crushing.
1: It makes it feel more forlorn than it had previously. I wouldn't have described it as
0: forlorn in the early parts of the track, but by this point towards the end, it really does feel that way. Well, it's the transition that really sells it, because the transition from the B to the A is, oh, God, one minute and 50 seconds, the single string glissando just kind of slowly screeches it up like it's just cranking up the heat, and then all of a sudden, boom, we're back at this dark chord, an extremely dark chord, which was an interesting pair from the glissando into a dark chord, and that was the return to the A, I believe. But you know, from this point on, the track gets a little bit more experimental, you know, the violins are squeaking, and then the A prime, double prime, whatever, it's always more full of heartbreak each time you hear it, and as a result, I felt this as the same kind of fulfilling piece. Um, on a grander scale than track six, despite I still felt like track six was a fulfilling piece as well, but it's like two different pieces on the same Romanian folk dance set to me. Like they, they exist as a pair, and they exist in the same place. And I think that's
1: another argument for why I feel like Solitaire lives up to what it's supposed to, because it's supposed to live up to something that allows you to move to this part. Had we gone from five to seven... Without Solitaire, I think it would be a lot more jarring and
0: we would have a lot more complaints personally. I agree, it introduces another flavor to this album. So yeah, I think that all all that was to was to support and defend track six. All of track seven was to defend it. I I hmm, I, I think my
2: grievances are going to keep me from agreeing with you. My previous okay. my previous problems are standing up here. Your disagreements, but, okay. <laughs> because I don't see the huge connection between Solitaire and Odessa. Aside from what you're talking about, it just doesn't really feel like it's present there for me. So drawing from the same region, that's not a context I really have for these two pieces. And it doesn't feel like they're... Borrowing that heavily from one another to be a true
0: theme connection between the two, as far as the melodies are concerned. True, and it doesn't really explain why Chili Gonzalez went there. Basically, in the end, I guess I'm the only one really seeing it, just because I have the connection to the Bella Bartok track. But, apart from all that, I guess we can disagree it's happened before. Let's go to track eight. Sample this. Or sample this. Or... I can't do, uh... Or... Just gestures on this podcast, but well, You can, just no one can see it. True. Sample this.
2: All right. Sample this. Or sample this. I could, it's, I don't know how to take that. You want to take it time. literally, don't you? I want to take it from the idea of, okay, don't delve too deeply into this track. Just take it at face value. Just be back. Just pluck from it. Just take little bits of it just and Just take enjoy a sampling that. of it. Exactly. Whereas I'm taking it from...
1: Um, sample this song. Like, because of the structure and how we'll get into how the song sounds, I feel like his intent is, here is a song that's ripe for sampling. If you are a hip-hop artist, or even if you're a pop artist, there are plenty of things here that you could use, even as a whole, to enhance
0: your experience. So please sample it. And Steve's perspective is... Mine is that it is uh, quite a bit more snide that he has a lack of respect, perhaps, maybe, for the sampling culture in the broad, so he's like, well, let's offer him some class. If you're gonna sample, sample this. I
1: mean, but all of the all of our interpretations aside, which, uh, shocker, will all probably be valid at the end of this discussion. Or none, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, we could completely invalidate each other. We've done that before. The thing that's interesting about this is it's the first track we get really on the whole album except maybe for Solitaire it does this a little bit, but here as a fuller-length track, repeats on itself a lot more and is more consistent than previous tracks we've gotten. There is less variation from
0: uh, part A to part B, and even within each part. The thing that comes up a lot is the the pulse here, this, like... One E, a two, and a E, and four E, and a one E, a two. Da, 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 da. That's just over and over and over with that. Um, uh, I liked it at it's, first. It like, I really enjoyed it at first. I feel the necessity to kind of go back to the Hans Zimmer comparison, but this time without the caveat that this is necessarily like a million times better. It's kind of in the same ballpark. I don't think Hans Zimmer's terrible. I just think that it's not always appropriate for film. Well here it doesn't even matter because we don't have a film. All I can say is that overall this does sound a bit more dramatic in kind of a slow burn kind of sense, but I do have to say that may be becoming a slight problem for me on this record. At least 75% of these tracks are exposition rich. So why would that be a problem? Well, because it's taking on a slight compilation feel only at this point, only here and only in this sense. Like, I didn't feel that back in track six, and that's why we had that argument before, but I hear it because of these types of intros. And uh, I don't know, maybe the compilation feels a little bit what he wanted, but that's only a component of our analysis.
1: Well, and I would say also that if we're approaching this based on my interpretation of it, it still fits into the cheeky nature of how he's kind of, duh, obvious with some of his Titles for tracks and if that's the case the relentless almost dramatic nature of part a as well as the kind of predictable beauty of part B could be intentional artistically because like on Freudian Slippers and other songs where he's using Cheekiness to purvey through what he's doing here. He's quite literally Infusing
2: it into the entire song as a whole well well you have to also take that nice rapid attack that I did like from the very beginning. I did enjoy the few first few repetitions of the string work, hmm. and I did like the kind of coy approach the piano has with the way it's introduced, the way it kind of integrates itself into the piece, and the way it works off of the melody. And then you have that intake of breath, and then it does it, does it again, and then you have that intake of breath... And it does it again. I'm not a fan of that repetition because it really, it really didn't feel like there was any evolution going on here. And I saw a couple of instances in previous tracks where they went from A to A Prime, where he actually did... Uh, reintegration of pieces and and when he repeated it, he did
0: evolution. He I th- did. I think I have sh- typically, an exchange of ideas going on. I have typically enjoyed the sections where it's A to A prime, then to B, rather than A to B and then to A prime. This was a lot of As going on. Well, no, it was well, A, or but it a long day. Yeah, right. This is besides the point. The point is when the piano enters, or I think it was more in B. It was a strange moment on the album because the piano here leapt off the screen. Like, it was almost like a solo for a moment, but it was inordinately loud. Just this little flourish was inordinately loud for what it was doing. Because all the drama at this point had completely melted away. And, I mean, I like when instruments are dynamic, but it was such a strange moment to be the most dynamic in probably quite a while on this record. I don't know. It was a minor observation. It was working with the cello, which was another oddball in this B
2: section, to have cello work. When cello had been used so sp- so sparingly, but it was what so was light, p- pizzicato cello at some point, something like that. Know. Yeah, but We're there's little... so much not a in this B section, and that is where I'm starting to draw the line. The B section in this really doesn't feel like it's
0: connected. Okay, so this we is have the a... first time I'm gonna say right out that they're different. They're two different pieces. It mean, all might be part of the sample. Of this joke. And so
1: two things in reference to that. A, Mm -hmm. if my interpretation of sample this is correct, then none of that
2: matters. Actually, no, a lot of it matters. No, none of it matters. No, because if you're saying sample this, there is no need for any repetition whatsoever in the A section. You could do it once, and then you're supposed to just take it and throw it on repeat. With no evolution to it, then it is quite literally he just is sampling himself with no changes. That's
1: incorrect. When you want to sample something proper, you need a few repetitions, because if you want to play with it, the single repetition... Sometimes can sound so identical and even the minor changes or if you're repeating the original artist repeating it It allows for more freedom to play with the length of it. That is true. That's Very true That said also that joke aside I want to make no allusions to the fact that whether I like this track or not because god, no, I hate this track I think uh, it's I just don't hate. I don't like it at all. Hey, but that said I have to be the devil's advocate to defend the artistic perspective of it. If the. Ryu slipped in my slippers. If the joke is any of what we're saying, it still very well applies to explain why he's doing this. However, it does completely break up the momentum of the album.
0: I.
2: I it's not the first time for me. Okay so I'm a little bit but I'm it a little, is little bit for more,
0: me I know and it's And it does not for me no I I don't like this track but I don't think it breaks up the momentum of the album in fact my critique is that it is too similar to uh, the other kind of drama exposition tracks this was my first point about this thing except that it is not as good And so to occur late in the album and throw a similar type of track of lesser quality to me is a little bit of a cop-out. So it's a completely different reason as to why I don't like this track. It was a little repetitive between the sheath of intricate composition that is still there, blah, blah, blah. But the tricks felt a little bit too easy in this one, too pop-inspired. And even the A-prime that
2: shows up after that B section feels like I can barely attribute that to it. It doesn't really do much more. It does what we used to get all the time in just the initial A exposition. Adds a little bit of flair, adds another level of context, and integrates some ideas that are going to show up later in full force in the final A. Here, if it, it felt like it was an early peak that just came at the end of the piece. Hmm.
0: Alright.
2: <laughs> Track nine? The difference. This I'm going to be flat out, this one perpetuated the
0: problem I'm seeing going on. I have to agree. Even though there is that guilty pleasure, which I think all of us kind of enjoyed, in the initial theme. Like, all right, you got violins and pianos. The violins stayed a theme, and it's kind of that uh, old-school, early 80s, late 70s, <clears throat> the cops and robbers theme. It's a little bit of that. Da-da-da-da, da, da, 2 da. and then there's like a long-held uh, single note in the violins that kind of adds some mystique to this, and the piano is still developing this very nicely. It's in the background there, comping alongside it, and it gets restated, and it gets restated again, and again. Da-da-da-da. With da It's the any, same principle as last track. Without any build. It's like, it actually,
2: no, no, no. It, it feels like it's kind of the opposite of the last track, where I had the problem of it, it being a little repetitive here. What follows off that da 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 changes almost constantly with each reiteration, but it's a 20-second theme that gets done over and over again, 15-second theme that
0: really, where does it go? Kind of nowhere. It's like what I said about the last track, it wasn't as exciting for me, the main theme inherently, and it's the same thing here. It's not as inherently interesting, it's not as interesting of an idea or of a motif he can rework it as much as he wants to, it's not going to really change its effect on me.
1: And again, I'm gonna play devil's advocate and talk about how artistically, I think it is doing some interesting things, even if musically it's leaving us all wanting. First of all, that repeated theme, I ate it up like candy, mostly Uh. because it was just kind of goofy, but what I want to point out here is it's the first time in a long time we're getting something that sounds distinctly late 70s, early 80s without any damn synth. There's not a single synth note, and yet it still conveys that motif, which I think is interesting. Also, it's very brief. The song doesn't last that long. I don't feel like the re- repetition grades on me at all. I think it's playful like previous tracks have been. Do I feel like it expanded my mind any like other tracks had? No, not necessarily, but I don't think it really overstated its welcome either.
2: Actually, that's where I would disagree. I think even though it's only two minutes long, there's no, uh, there's no adherence to any specific time on this album. Things take as long as they need to take to fulfill what they're supposed to do. And up until the last two tracks, tracks eight and nine... I feel like the lengths have been spot on, whether they're five and a half minutes or under two minutes. I have had no issue with I want longer or I want shorter. They've been perfect for that. The last two tracks have both been too long, in my opinion. They both overstayed their welcome, regardless of how long they actually are. It's not the actual time that's the factor, it's the fact that we end up going nowhere previous track, we ended up almost exactly where we started with an oddball B section. Here, we're walking around in a circle, carving a a furrow in the floor, with how many
0: times we do the same thing over and over and over again. I'll make no bones about the fact that these are two of my least liked uh, tracks on this album, but I also want to make the distinction between, you know, comparatively disliking something and just flat-out disliking it. Like, on another record, this track would appear, and I'd probably think it was, like, oh, a real lift, you know? It's just something about... Thank God we got the difference. Yeah, exactly. Thank God we got the difference next to that... Pop, you know, ghastly piece that just preceded it. I don't know In this album. It's it's just a matter of comparative enjoyment. That's the thing. That's the, what you have to wrestle with because I talked so glowingly about almost everything from tracks one through seven. It's just the conversation is going to go this way. But I want to make the honorable mentions about the parts of this track that really do soar above that simple theme that may be coloring our perception of this track. So like 50 seconds in, I really liked the piano when it started, the comping got a bit more complex, and it sort of grows the mystery well into the minute mark. And then, minute and 20 seconds, we restate the opening theme firmer, and there was still a threshold for me enjoying it at this point, because also there's like other shades of color that are added into the later part of this track. It was almost like a dose of Yanni was entered into mm. here, but like he hadn't quite sounded so new age yet in this album. so that that was a little bit weird, and I, I like Yanni, but it was the subtlest of departures for me in terms of his sound. Uh, but I guess more importantly, the the big failing in this track is that it just ends. It's another one of those tracks that has relatively no finale. It almost felt spliced to a to a fault, and uh, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. He he does that every once in a while. Sometimes he has really. I think I termed it sharp but pronounced. Or, or short but pronounced finales, which I actually tend to like, but this was not that. It was just kind of, it ends and I, it felt like the ending was forgettable. Um, he does not have very many Beethoven outros that really develop the previous material in their conclusion. It's well, not as, he's not as dramatic at the end. It wouldn't, wouldn't Beethoven
2: outros be longer than most of the tracks probably as, as a whole like a beethoven outro like would probably be the length of long, yeah. the length of this album yeah, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> there was like one track
0: earlier where he did something like that and i did like that though so let's move on to the next pun on the album cello gonzalez it's one of the least lesser creative puns
2: yeah but it's chilling cello it's, eh. it's 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 very appropriate because this is really the first time we have the cello be the be all end all of the track second time Second time, Mm, I would I would disagree a little bit because of the integration with the cello and the piano previously, which was in track three, "Sweet Burden." I think they had equal voices here. It feels like the cello is the singular voice
0: backed up by the well, piano. Well, he's in the title. I mean, come on. Uh, but we have the piano just rocking back and forth between two chords. And then when the cello melody enters, I you can't... I mean, this was a little bit of a lift for the last two tracks. Because, of course, even just the cello itself. I love the cello as an instrument. It's hard not to... Uh, It's hard not to appreciate just about anything it does. And it really, really was a beautiful melody. And actually, the melody reminded me specifically of the first track off of Tales of Us by Goldfrapp, which I know I I compared early on this album to Goldfrapp. But this is specifically Joe. The track Joe, very first track. It was actually my favorite track off of that record. And I will admit, though, that although I think I enjoyed... That melody, slightly more because it was more flushed out. This was, you know, still too motif-esque, which is... Really, I gotta admit at this point, kind of an upper-level critique. Like, I don't pretend to approach this in a professorial fashion, but it's the kind of thing a master's class professor would say to their 30-something-year-old students. Like that time that I was, uh, I sat in on a seminar with Vladimir Feltzman at my college. There was a student performing a piece with all of his might, and then at the end of it, Feltzman was just like, Sir, you play piano very well, but what else? (laughs) And it was like, oh my god. It's like that level of critique, because the cello is fantastic, and all I'm saying is that it could have been a little bit more direction-heavy, like I felt out of Joe from Tales of Us. I know that's a weird comparison, so all I'm trying to point out here is just my own snootiness. Do not take it too seriously.
1: Yeah, but that said, I mean, you do have a point. I mean, the cello is the center of this story, the hero, if you will. But it does feel like it's kind of meandering at points. I mean, you know, even wandering, like it's lost or tired. It,
2: it, it, there's a sense of exhaustion from this track almost. But, and this is the big but, uh, there's a couple of things that I think allow the cello to be better than it would have been. One is the B sections that show up, which the piano and cello actually switch off, so Piano tries to take center stage, but it is sort of a meandering section, it is sort of a slower section, but this allows the cello, when it comes back in with those A primes, and we go through two B's to get to these A's, the A's feel redoubled, they feel like there's a lot more force, but it's... Not really the cello that's doing it, this piano getting more complicated as the cello starts being louder, being stronger, being more center stage. Well, piano going from this rhythm to something that's definitely much less just a rhythm section and more of a complementary melody to what the cello is doing is is a
0: great transformation from A to A prime to A double prime. Well, there's a fine line between development and meandering, even though they seem like polar opposites. Actually, I think they are polar opposite terms. Meandering really doesn't have uh, direction, but development does. does, at yeah. least I feel it does. So I don't know. I I feel like maybe we were just on the opposite sides of the same exact section here. But all that said, I want to stress, this is still remarkably pretty. Yeah. Like. Just, the performance here is drop-dead stellar. The, The timbre of the instrument, the color, the range, everything about it. I honestly wish the cello was a bigger part of this record outside of its two prominently featured roles. But just one more honorable mention for this track, the piano, when it restates that theme later. Uh, To give this track the credit that it very well deserves, the redevelopment of this motif is very, very creative. He at times almost turns it into a joke. Like, he'll just plunk along with the melody and and the chords, you know, on the piano, and then he'll play it in this just staccato call and response between the piano and the cello. That thing was really, really fantastic. And I also really like the reintroduction of A at uh, 2 minutes and 17 seconds. So there it's it's a it's a serious track despite those little jokes and i think um i really was happy to see this after the previous two tracks which i feel were almost like he wasn't taking himself as seriously and i thought that was briefly to the album's detriment all right from here we go to track 11
1: switchcraft which for the first time on the whole record we get a brand new instrument only pretty much featured on this track horn Yes, it's a, a horn. French horn, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think it's a French horn as well. But it adds kind of almost a reinvigorating nature to the album because it, this part is pretty much all rise, this track. We've got... And something that was hinted at... When I referred to as the cello as the hero in the previous track, what I mean by the hero is this kind of like puffy alpha kind of feel. Yeah. It was hinted at in the previous track though it was a little slower. Here, you really get it. You get this hero's journey kind of fantasy feel. Like this would not be amiss in a modern Final Fantasy game. And here we're getting the drama back. But the drama is <laughs> being done in a very different way. It's not, you know, drama. It's Drama. Well, it, it feels a little wider. You're somewhere, in be, you're somewhere in between, between those the, two. Yeah, I guess it's because
2: fair. like we were. Tr- I was trying to come up with names. We were trying to come up with like what this represented, and it. Like, we're throwing out Never Ending Story, Conan the Barbarian. Last Unicorn. Last Unicorn. A little less blood in Conan.
0: Dragon Heart. Like, the almost stereotypical 1980s fantasy movie. And a lot of that has to do with the horn. It feels stately. It has a Mm -hmm. presence. It adds, you know, you can't have heroism without horns, without brass of some kind. Um, Honestly, when I think of, like, old civilizations, like BC civilizations, Rome, Greece, I only hear their music as just being horns. Like, I don't hear anything else. I I just hear that kind of, like, parade stuff, the kind of stuff you'd hear in Ben-Hur and whatnot. The stuff that we don't know they actually did, but just presume that they did, because we have no record of their music. But... Um, th- th- another thing is the rhythm. The, the the rhythm here, it's in eight, I think, but it feels like a pair of six and two, actually really two groups of three and a followed group of two. That's kind of how I feel the beginning here.
1: Yeah, I, what I really like about this track, I think, on the whole, and especially in that moment that you're talking about where it, it states the th- two groups of threes and then the two, is that when it loops on itself, it does reaffirm this kind of stately nature And I like that it has the, I guess it leads back to my puff chest alpha male kind of feel, but not in a overly jockey manly way, in a very
0: proud, noble way. Yeah, Um, and also, you know, since you said about the repetitions, like, the violins, when they have their theme here, they restate the same exact thing, but in a higher pitch, it sounded like. Like, a much higher pitch further on, which also lends to the drama here. But I want to get to 1 minute and 15 seconds, because this is where we get kind of a B section, and this is kind of a callback to the earlier part of the album. I was starting to hear the mystical Beauty and the Beast piano theme again, the rolling high pitch stuff, and I, I do confess, though, I wish this part was developed a little bit more because i think this was the more interesting part of this song but at 138 and we do just go back to a
2: if we're doing old school fantasy action movies you need to have this reigning piano only stay long enough to allow character development yeah, okay because as the a primes come in everything
0: starts getting bigger and better and we don't just get horns we show up with flutes yeah a lot of stuff um i mean well, even just the piano soloing the background in the very beginning was kind of interesting, Uh, but that it is really milking the chord motifs. It's it's just, it's not, the difference here is, yeah, it's the other stuff. It's the different instruments that actually make the chord motif more interesting, which since we've been working with basically the same palette of instruments all this time, I guess that is kind of a, a, a development. Um, so yeah, the flutes are really interesting beyond the two-minute mark. There was other stuff, but it was it was a really a lot more beautiful this time in the in the recurring sections, recurring appearances of A, because also the strings here were like really partitioned and harmonized exceptionally well between the uppermost strings. I was absolutely adoring this entire build-up to the to ultimately to the outro. Yeah, so, right. yeah, I guess this track did kind of save itself a little for me. Um, I don't think I was ever really down on it, come to think of it. I think I'm projecting the, the, the being down on the previous two tracks onto this track. I don't, think it's as, uh, I don't think it's as relevant here.
1: Yeah, this is one of my favorite tracks on the record oh, because of the way it builds and the way it moves through. I'm a sucker for a hero song also. And it's called Switchcraft. Yeah, but like, that's probably my favorite title on the album, honestly. And and then, I mean, even when we get to, like, the 3.30 mark and towards the outro where it kind of strips itself down, it, it some of it seems like in practice could be considered cliche, but because of how virtuosic the performance is here, I can't, the thought can't even enter my mind.
2: It was a rolls-credit kind of p- moment when everything starts falling yeah. apart, and I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly okay when the credits roll because it felt like I got a very quick summation of of, of, a, of a really cheeky action movie. And if this
1: is the credits roll, then track 12, Myth Me, is the post-credits bump or stinger, I feel like, almost for this. Okay. Because for the first time on the entire record we have lyrics but what? if we're getting
2: a stinger uh, we're not getting you know iron man 1 have you ever heard of the a- avengers initiative like everything starts coming to cool. no this is this feels more like a guardians of the galaxy howard duck kind of a stinger oh. it's
0: just a thing that's there that may not really further the entire thing that came before it i don't want to undersell alright, i have i have mixed feelings about this but i, I will too. i, I will too. say it, do, I it shocked and appalled me um and i don't know what appalled means in this instance because first of all the obvious is Are you sure it didn't I, shock in a steve you uh, we don't even know a Paul for there to be that... that I know I a couple of Pauls. I don't all know right. any Pauls. No, He's actually, yeah, I do that. know a couple of Pauls. They're, they're kind of jerks. Anyway, mm-hmm. these particular... And if you have hate mail uh, because you are Paul, please send it to... I don't remember his name. I didn't it's... say all Pauls are jerks. <laughs> it's <laughs> my Pauls. They're
2: it's jerks. Steven, it's steve.nagle at
1: crashcords.com.
0: Thanks a lot. Joke over anyway. Thanks a lot. We're going to get a Paul. I know it. Um, <laughs> or several. Paul Bearers. This particular track, I mean, just following a classical album, if you go back to the intro, my giant intro to classical music, where we discussed that in the beginning of this episode, and I said that I have a tendency sometimes to sit with classical music for weeks at a time, you know? and that If that's the mood that I'm in, then that's the mood that I'm in, and it takes a really mon- monstrous rock album to really drag me out of it. But in those instances... Can you imagine how I would feel if just all of a sudden when I'm listening to, like, weeks and weeks of just instrumentals, instrumentals, then I just heard a voice, okay. like, come out of the—like, that's what I'm—this is the last track. So I had entrenched myself into the classical world, despite what he says about these things being kind of pop in principle in in ways that I don't think are are as relevant as far as our discussions are concerned here. But this track sort of is a pop track. Not sort of, it is. Yeah, it is, is. yeah, it is. And it's, his vocals are delivered in a verse chorus structure, and I think I'm going to read them. Vanity is vanishing, singing is the saddest thing, better say a long farewell before you know this song too well. Chorus, are you still with me? You're going to myth me. Uh, is he making fun of people with lisps There, I, no. Does I, he have a
1: lisp? I, I don't. I don't think so. I think this no, is the, this is the idea of the this joke. Play, Yeah, obviously, it's a play on "miss me," but also almost mythifying somebody, making them larger than life. And look, as far as cheekiness goes, there are plenty of titles to speak to how cheeky he wants to feel. But here, if I didn't know Chili, I might think this is a Ben Folds track. I mean, it really follows those kinds of goofy. And silly Ben Folds tracks to a T. It's his vocal delivery. He sounds
2: a lot like Ben. I mean, it's oh, hard. on a first-name basis now? Yes, we're on a first-name basis, yes, a first name basis uh. with Ben Folds. Hey, Wait, Matt is one the one only
0: th- one has, who's actually
2: met I was Ben. Just saying, I'm which one okay with that. Right. I'm living vicariously through <laughs> you. Uh, over a lot of stuff these days. Anyway, it, it, it sounds just like him. Um, the lilt is a little bit off, but it's only enough for me to be able to make the distinction between the two people without actually side-by-side side listening to the
0: their different songs and right. different vocals. Well, let me get out a couple things here, then. Because, first of all, I could have probably enjoyed this track right before his vocals entered, based only on the piano. Because, alright, it would have been still a little bit poppy, but I really, really liked just the motion-heavy, flowing 4-4 that, that this started with. The kind of, like, muffled one in the bass, and then the upper register, you have the beats to three, four. And then the second phrase was even more interesting. The piano was a little bit busier. So this is one of the reasons why I was so shocked to hear those vocals. And then there was a bit of a roller coaster. First, I'm shocked. There's vocals. that They're just present, and that's weird. Second, I was a little bit thrown, actually, by the vocal quality. I thought that, well, this wasn't a classically trained vocalist in the same way that he's clearly a classically trained piano player. They were, you know, a little bit unpolished, maybe. But then I think back to certain other pop stars, and I think there is an unpolished quality to Ben Folds. Uh, but it's just that we're so used to it now that it's, well, second nature. And if you hear Ben Fold for the entirety of an album, which you pretty much do on any Ben Folds album, then you're used to it. In which case, I have to swing back to the fact that the only thing that's weird here is that there are vocals. Because later on, I did start to really enjoy the melody, especially in the chorus. Are you still with me? You're gonna myth me. And even with the little joke in there that kind of throws you from the serious tone here, the myth me part really did Have me curious, because it made me wonder about the inherent double entendre here between myth me and are you going to miss me? Actually, it's a great little bit of wordplay at the end of the day, because
2: when you miss someone, it means they're in their memory, it's in the past, and you start of idolizing them or mythifying them, making them greater than what they were or lesser than what they were, which is essentially what he's talking about. So it's actually cutting out the middleman of
0: time actually creating the myth. It's a nice... Which would be a stretch if you were talking about a personal relationship, I think. Although, maybe not. But, maybe not. But certainly with the... me? I, I'm the musician. He's actually introducing himself. He's the way on fans stage. say yes. that they
2: miss artists no, it, is very much like they make them a part of their mythology. It works extremely well. I just don't know if it really does belong on this album because it feels like the oddball. It feels like it really doesn't bring anything to the table besides his voice besides the actual artist showing up which up until this point i had no problem with him you know being behind the instruments i had no problem with him actually being behind the curtain or in front of the orchestra or ensemble here because i don't think we're working a whole orchestra anyway it feels like he had to i don't know impose himself here a
0: little bit too much i I don't I don't really I hardly want. think that appearing in the final track of an album is an imposition I, I mean it, other, it other it otherwise worse. otherwise I'm gonna call you out that it's the same it's essentially the same argument as as scattering by Prager that you guys were making to me and that I wasn't even quite uh, digging, which was the final track, Werewolf. Actually, that track has since grown on me quite a bit. But anyway, your whole argument was on the premise that Werewolf was almost like an outside-of-the-album thing that appeared as a kind of epilogue. And this is an absolute epilogue because it is so kind of out of the wheelhouse of his earlier stuff.
2: But what I think would keep Werewolf within the wheelhouse is that it did not take any chances on what it did. It still... Kept the same building blocks of the rest of the album. This is introducing a whole new meta to the album itself. Myth Me is also removing a lot of the interplay between the strings and the piano that I had issues with before that piece. Yeah, but those things had been removed before, so it's not. Uh, alienated It was drama. removed before
0: and I had problems
2: with right. it, so why would I have less problems with All right, it? Alright, you
0: were the one who started to get closer to this, you know, interesting uh, double entendre with the theme that you proposed, but now you're pulling back away from it. I want to just complete, I like the, tra- let's oh. complete the, the, the rest of the lyrics here. Verse 2 Fading till I disappear into the lake of missing tears, so better say a long goodbye instead of using songs to cry. Are you still with me? You're gonna myth me. And then you have a little bit of a violin flourish just in, a, in the gap here before what is kind of sort of a bridge. I just didn't have the stomach for life upon the star-studded summit. So afraid I couldn't cut it. Well, maybe, maybe I'm not so cold-blooded. I'm not so cold-blooded. And then, almost sort of a spoken refrain, or maybe this is really the true bridge, not actually the last one was a true bridge, but this is strange because for all of a sudden he's not singing. That's why I call it a spoken refrain. He's almost borderline rapping here. Although it uses some of the lyrics that are actually from earlier in the track. Better say a long goodbye instead of using these songs to cry. These changes are so minuscule. I'm still addicted to the ridicule. Now there, and actually many other places in the song, it really does does address his life as an artist and it really comes back to all of those things we mentioned in the prologue about how maybe i don't know the the other possible second life he could have had as a pop star back when he was still in canada or maybe even still after he went overseas but but he seems to indicate in this track didn't have the stomach for is that possible i mean it is i
1: don't think that you know bringing up the Prager final track uh, makes me kind of take a step back and i had first felt this track was kind of unnecessary but you're kind of right considering it's kind of like an epilogue and the fact that he's singing like i wasn't super shocked about it yes it was a little out of left field to have lyrics but i wasn't shattered by yeah. it i was just like all right whatever here's another song because the instrumentation though it's pretty much just piano still doesn't feel foreign for what this album had provided before. Yes, there was no interplay between the strings and the piano, mostly because it was just piano. But there was interplay between his vocals and the piano, which is which was playful. And there was some integration between the two, which is something he's done quite a bit. So for that, I kind of allow it to exist. And I think, allow it to exist, that sounds so high and mighty. I think that it's not that <laughs> as divorced from the flow of the
2: album as I thought it was. I actually did not think it was a bad track by any stretch. I thought it was a good song. I just it's weird to be on a classical album and say it's a good song. I know we're not supposed to use that word about classical stuff. It's they're pieces. They're, they're pieces. pieces. Except they're this. the tracks. Except but except this song. song right here. Uh the, the real the real problem I have is that it's doing a lot of the same things I have with the other tracks that I have problems with, which is Removing the conflict I guess between pieces there isn't anything that's contentious there isn't anything that is Working off of another piece here the
0: piano just complements his vocals so that everything flows very well I don't think of this if you will an epilogue or rather an epitaph Is there conflict in that kind of writing when you're writing about the dead? You know when you're writing about the end of something all is said and done all that's left to do is just say, "Well, you know, he was a he was a great guy, or he was a rat bastard." I don't know. That like it's just a solemn period at the end of the sentence. I don't feel like I need musical conflict because, really, I've been given a summation all within the lyrics. I eh, I'll, I'll concede that point, but.
2: One little point of contention I have with that kind of an explanation is that when you have this epitaph, when you have this finality, well, with one person, maybe, maybe you're talking about a eulogy here even. I would even say that might be uh, an appropriate thing because it feels kind of death-like here. That's what I kind of was I was getting ways. to. Here, this kind of death of the album feels like, well, okay, he's done. If you're going to go in that direction, having a finality, having so firm a period on something that really was drawing all over the place, and even the worst parts of this album were like really good, they were very well composed, and it's another one of those situations where I have problems, but honestly the quality of the composer is far outstripping of most of these problems. This final track feels like he doesn't want to do more in a lot of ways where life has to go on there's so much life in this album there's so much evolution in this album this conflict where you're seeing forced evolution where the the pieces have to keep reinventing themselves, keep building upon themselves because of what the other pieces are doing. I think that's where, when I start finding the pared down where I'm not seeing that conflict, I'm being disappointed because there's no forced evolution. There's no there's no strife going on here. I, I love the Darwinism that you find in the earlier parts of the album so much more strongly because they're pushing one another back and forth, back and forth to be better than what they were earlier. And that... I just start seeing it slack off as we go past track six, eight, and nine. Really, didn't have that, that forceful evolutionary drive. It it feels like a lot of those instincts were gone, and that's why Myth Me, really kind of felt flat for me. It, it would it was definitely missing that that core element, that core theme that I really didn't think I had in this album. That was one of the problems that we were talking about off air arc and theme we brought it up earlier but i saw the arc was amazing throughout this piece but the theme was kind of lacking and we i discovered it over our discussion that it really i really feel like it is that concept i just proposed to you that one piece is always pushing the others to do better and where it falls flat i am just really disappointed cuz it it reaches such heights when it, they're working So for that 4.5, I really don't feel like it's doing anything that warrants it above that 4.5 yet. But he's really, really well composing, something that honestly should be extremely familiar and doesn't come off that way. Alrighty,
1: my turn. So, I mean... Up front, I don't think I had as many conflicts with the less-liked tracks that both John and Steve seem to have a problem with. 8 and 9, while, yes, not as good as the other tracks, I still enjoyed because their length didn't, for me at least, make me feel like they overstayed their welcome. Um, As far as an album as a whole and talking to theme, I think the arc is more important here because... Like Steve said, the album is called Chambers. It's a collection of chamber music and so I think the compilation nature is intended. I want to say that there could have been some kind of through line based on the song titles but you know as we go further into the album it seems like he just likes being punny or clever and it's more about that than actually creating a through line for the album. Um, Steve turned me around on Myth Me a bit. I thought it felt kind of frivolous initially, but now that I look at it through those eyes, I kind of get why it's there. Um, There's no denying the virtuosity of of Chili. I think that this album is phenomenal for that, and as far as contemporary classical, the greatest oxymoron to ever exist, as Steve said (laughs) earlier... This is a great example of it, and I think what really makes this stand out and puts it into the upper echelon for me is it doesn't... There are moments that feel familiar, but the album as a whole doesn't feel like it's been done before. It feels wholly new within a space that is playing off of something that's come before. You know, I don't listen to this and go, oh, that's Bach, and
0: that's Beethoven, and that's Mozart, like... And doesn't every album really play off of things that came before to some extent? I thought we actually threw around less references today than usual. Yeah, I would agree. And that's why this, for me, has to be in the upper echelon.
1: Um, As far as listenability and going back to it, I like having instrumental pieces on tap to always go back to. They're nice for long car rides when you want to have dialogue with who you're driving with, but you don't want to talk over words. Um, You can still keep it loud but hear each other. It's great background music as well as focusing music and I think it's a versatility that a lot of instrumental music has that other pieces or songs do not Um, so I'm going to be a little higher than John because I was very impressed by it and I think that it's thoroughly doing things in a space that typically you find things stagnate or be predictable and it's not so for me this is a 4.7 I think that I'd be more inclined to put it at a five if we didn't have these moments where, you know, it did dip into things that were a little more predictable or a little more uh, repetitive. But even those things were still virtuosically done. So I'm still impressed by
0: All right. I think I'm going to confess that maybe I would have preferred to sit – With this album for a little while longer and I know that's I mean of course Doug suggested it back in December you know we had a month we had a kind of clumped week but a lot of stuff was going on so I didn't get to this until our normal you know week leading up to the episode event but even though I did listen to it several times I wish I had more time with it for the exact reason that it is a classical album for instance like I said I listen to a lot of classical music I can spend a lot of time just kind of immersed in that environment And very often, those are not works that I can digest, like, in one or two or three or four goes. Like, for a concerto, for uh, Ornstein's, I think it was first or second piano quintet, I had to sit with that for, like, three months. Three months! For a while, I was just stuck in the first movement. I couldn't even get to the second movement because I was still noticing details in the first movement. It's just the way classical music is for me. Um, There are rock albums that do the same thing, but... Uh, It's a lot more complicated with classical stuff. And yet there is that pop element, which I never really, I didn't mention, but I know it's there. I know it's there because I can hear how Chili Gonzalez is at the end of the day constraining these particular pieces for the sake of maybe just the timestamp in the end. Just for the sake of having something that at least, if it's not digestible to everyone in the world at face value, it's digestible just because it's not going to take you long to get through. It doesn't have to be an event. And I, I remember saying very early on this entire series that some of the reasons I would rate an album really, really highly is because the album has the capacity to actually change minds and to actually bring them into another Music universe in a way that it actually, if it has that capability going for it, then it is really well deserving of uh, an upper ech- upper echelon rating. Despite, let's say, maybe the the critiques that I have with it, and I do have critiques with the album, but I want to stress some some things here. Track 1, it was a prelude, but it was still a lot of shock and awe, just because I was getting into his sound. I was getting involved with how with how he approaches the piano and how he approaches composition for the first time. So even the, like, the sudden ending, I didn't really care. I was happy to hear uh, a modern fugue. And then, really, after that, it was an amazing streak. Track 2, Advantage Points. Uh, track 3, Sweet Burden. Green's Leaves. Uh, Freudian Slippers. Uh, even on to solitaire and odessa i love these tracks i love them to death i don't have many critiques with any of them so for that streak i just don't get that on albums too much And just the self-awareness to place that many tracks in a row with such a complete story arc in and of themselves within a short period of time that doesn't have to last, you know, ten minutes for your full-on exposition development and recapitulation. It doesn't have to have any of that. It can be done in a much shorter span of time. I might have preferred certain things like to be developed even on those tracks, but I don't really care in the end because it was just too well done. It was too tightly arranged. It's uh, the rest of the album that has me riddling back from, I think, the five territory that I really, really was hovering around for a while here. It's the following tracks that I see as a little bit purposeless. I I, I don't get sampled this. I, I find it as almost just him belittling his own work a little bit. I don't know. The difference, I found somewhat of the same thing. A uh, bit of a pick-me-up back in Chilli- Cello Gonzalez, and uh, Switzcraft was still pretty good. And I defend Myth Me, at least in terms of tying the theme together, which maybe validates some of those previous tracks a little bit, but that's only in theme. It doesn't, it doesn't address my core musical issues with those particular tracks. So uh, I'm a little bit split here, but I think at the end of the day, we simply don't look at music of this caliber on a nearly consistent enough basis, even though we have had some uh, upper echelon works. Prager is is chief among them, so is Eno by Second Relation. But uh, this is a very different style that I would like to see a little bit more of, and I think one of the things I like most about it is that it isn't very equatable, despite my Bartok references and my Eric Satie references, it's not that equatable to former classical musicians, to... The dead musicians, essentially. It's, it's, a, it's a guy doing what he loves in the modern era, and I think it has a wonderful place there. For the issues that this album has toward the end, and perhaps for certain areas which could have used a little bit more development, I'm going to give this a 4.8. It's... Sitting there right now, but I have a feeling this might be making an appearance in the year in review. I I have I know it's really early in the year to be saying something like that, but I need to digest this a little bit more because on an album scale, it kind of is like I just listened to a symphony. Fair enough, I think that
1: uh, it is a little early to be making allusions to what we may come back to, especially since we have a, have sometimes have trouble referring back to stuff that came so early on we have to kind of remind ourselves
0: well today was a
1: unique day actually last year we didn't have that much problems we did a lot of early that's true some of my favorite stuff was at the beginning of last year Um, of course typically we would follow this up with an engaging topic but we pretty much had that at the top of the show so refer back to that if you want your topic at the end you can listen to it again after the review that's just stupid. That is ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, um, and then following that, of course, we would typically have a spam email. Yes. So what's a
0: spam email so I can make fun of it? We don't have a spam email today. I didn't include one last week for an obvious reason because it was just simply Doug. We do always have done real mail yeah. when we have real mail in place of spam mail. And so we read Doug's announcement, uh, his recommendation. Um, but it made me think, all right. It's the beginning of the year. Maybe it's time to try something new because we've been doing spam mail for a long time now. We've been getting spam since 2010, really. That's how old the site is. And uh, we have had a spam filter working for a long, long time. And I have finally exhausted just about all of the spam that we received in all of those pre-spam filter days. And I think it's time to call it. We've been doing it since, like, episode 30. And, uh, I don't know, something about turning the spam filter off just to get more spam doesn't seem to make very much sense. I think it's time to replace the segment. So, can we, can we're we going to we try taps? this out. We should play Taps at uh, this
2: moment. Pull. <laughs> No, wait, that's clay pigeon shooting. (laughs) Oh, can we do that to the spam we have
0: left? Can I shoot it? Yes, yes, absolutely. I got a light gun still from old NES. Anyway, what's our new segment? Our new segment is the music term of the day. I know it's a little bit trite because, of course, we've probably just gone through a laundry list of musical terms in our description of this album, but... Sometimes, we need to step a little bit outside the box to look at terms that even we're not familiar with. I've owned a music dictionary for most of my life. It's been sitting on the bookshelf. It always helped me back when I was learning piano. Uh, but, you know, there was... I didn't always read it front to back. I'm not, I'm not that insane. So, you know what? Let's just learn a little bit today. Let's transform probably the stupidest segment of this podcast into the most enlightening segment of this podcast. I'm going to learn something. You guys are learning something. And hopefully, you all out there will learn something as well. L'estesso! Is the music term of the day. Can you Brilliant. repeat that
2: without inflection?
0: Lestesso. You mean listesso? You can't do it that way. Lestesso. No, l'estesso. you don't. Lestesso. You're Italian, i not. No, yes, not, not. but I wouldn't but have we're to we're all
2: do, Island, so. It's listesso. Listesso. There
0: you go, there you go. What yeah, does that see, mean? That was nice. I've said like eight had times had a nice now. flow there. Same. Same? It really same really <laughs> that's a dramatic term for something that means the same it in music it would typically uh direct that the following movement in the piece should be played at the exact same tempo as the last which is a strange term for me because that's really redundant if you just never had it there i would presume that the following movement or the following thing, whatever it is, should be played at the last tempo because a new tempo has not been indicated. But I guess between movements, mm, yeah, maybe you forgot what was on the last page. I don't know. For me, I can just start
1: using that. Instead of when someone posts an emotionally related meme or gif and then people below it go, same, 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 same I'll same, go, list Exactly. See, this great,
0: could still be as
2: enjoyable as the spam is, segment. Yeah, I could, I, I'm not going to be posting it. So I got that going for me. Wow. Okay.
1: Well, geez, thank, thank you. Just owns all things internet. Thank you yep. for that, Steve. Maybe this is something we can all get in on. I, or feel free to share us your music terms of the day or week or year um, with us online. Um, let us know if you year. are too mourning the loss of our spam email. Please write your hate mail for killing the segment to steve.nagel at
2: crashcourse.com. Crash We're com. not supposed to do that. We already did that once today. We, yeah. we can't do it again. You can never do it too much. Okay. All right. Let's we, talk. We about can let him go next week. Then we won't. We won't do it next week. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Two weeks. In we won't do you it. You got that going, Steve. You, if you, you, go. you
0: if you want to read these things, you better get your no no. On we fast. won't do the hate mail thing next yeah, week. Yeah. Yeah. We, we won't make. Because that, we did oh, it twice. Okay, I got you. Got we got, got you. a bye week. All right. It's your segment now, John.
2: Okay. Well. Okay. I like to infuriate people. That's that much is true. And I also like my electronica, which is very true. And I also like to find odd corners of the internet. And that's how I found this next band, because honestly, I can find them together on anywhere but their Bandcamp website, Patrice Dillon and Rupert Clerval, with the album Two Changes. Now there's a very specific reason why I chose this album, it's because
0: it is 33-34 minutes long and two tracks. Which sounds like it could be easy following this. Oh but no, no no We nay, don't nay, know.
2: Nay, 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 nay. Okay. Because certain words are being thrown around here and that is experimental, electronica, and jazz. Uh. And yeah. I listened to I'll, I listened to it through and through. Just just because I had to when I saw so many random things being thrown together. Now, as always, we groan at the work. We're excited for the listen. I don't know. At, at the end of the day, I don't know if this is even going to be enjoyable. Kind of music, but I think this will promote some very interesting yelling matches. I mean discussions. All right. right. Well, on that shocking note,
1: um, (laughs) check that out next for next week. Maybe you also listener may want to do your homework in advance as we.
2: Yeah, trust me on this one. Yeah,
1: this is going to be intense. I get a feeling. So uh, remember, as always, in my very most exhausted
0: voice, music is life, and And life is is good. good. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at